Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. Now, the, the first single of this album is called Spark. Tell me about the title track and what it's about. Uh, the one thing about the experience is that I really started to appreciate just the miracle of life. The and spark of life. Yeah, every yeah. little. I mean, spark at first I was trying to connect with the spirit because I just felt I needed that connection because although the physicalness goes, you feel like you've connected. And this being has brought so many questions up and so many feelings up. And that connection seems severed. Although obviously people believe on the etheric realm you can talk and you can communicate mm -hmm. and you know it goes beyond rhyme or reason but um you know i i really felt like i was desperately searching for the life force hey everybody you're listening to drive all night the songs of tori amos we are your hosts i'm Ephraim jr and i'm david anderson and on today's episode we're talking about spark the first song from tori's fourth album from the choir girl hotel David. Hey, Eve. How's it going? Great. How are you? I'm well. I can tell. You seem like you're in high spirit. I am in high spirit. I love to see that. Are you in high spirit? I'm, yeah, I'm getting there. Maybe I can match you. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Doubt it. Nobody you set can. the bar high. We're about to start the choir girl season. At long last. It's very exciting, David. I think we have teased the people long enough. I think so, too. I think even the choir girl primer was a tease in some ways. I felt teased by it. Now we're here doing what we do. Now we're here just talking. That was a whole scripted adventure. I know. We had a team of writers, a director. <laughs> and we were all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Foley artists. It was an adventure to be sure. Tordor. Think we're going to get into more scripted content? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you've given yeah. it some thought, I see. A one and done. Jumping into the world of Torador was fun. Jumping into the map, we spent some time in a map. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been in a map? Just that once. Just that once? Yeah. It was pretty intense. But now are you ready for our new season? New year, new season? I am ready. It's the dawn of a new era, which we keep saying, but it really is. So I'm at a place in my life where I'm ready to dive into a new project. I hope you're ready for it. It's a whole new season. 12 episodes, at least 24 more hours of talking I about know. Tori. Well, every great rock album has 12 tracks. So Isn't that sobering to know that if you were to start listening to the Choir Girl era, at the end of it, when we are done, if you just listen to all 12 episodes, back to back you'll have spent a full day with us like 24 hours yeah and if you do that and if you are binge listening to all of them at the end of the season please let us know email us at songs of tori at gmail.com we want to know also let us know if you choose to listen to it in booklet order and oh, what that experience is like <laughs> that's interesting because there is a booklet order for from the choir girl hotel that is not reflected in the sequencing on the disc right do you know why that is i feel like people have asked her right wasn't the question like is this your preferred order or is 
remembers this the order in which the songs came and she's basically like no it was like a layout <laughs> issue <laughs> probably the same reason there are no agent orange lyrics or in that case we assumed that she just forgot i've heard that it was the order that they were written in it's true of pandora at right. least and I'm, i think it kind of stops there because doesn't she say well you know we read an interview where she says what order they came in it was pandora spark and playboy mommy right mm-hmm. and that's definitely not the booklet order because well, playboy mommy's last so well playboy mommy was the last thing she did because she said i've got the first line remember she had this one song circling and she couldn't get that one line so i believe that playboy mommy was like the last thing finished for the album that's true the last thing finished i guess so maybe she was working on it throughout the process and just couldn't crack it but like the bones of it kind of came forth at the very beginning of this era so but if we like think of it that way too then we have to think that cruel and iie were being sound checked in the do drop in era so you think those would be like the first thing that came yeah that's a good especially point especially if she's saying that pandora came like after the miscarriage on the water the first notes of pandora came mm, mm. but we have evidence that she had at least bits of iie and cruel prior to that and in the cruel improv let's say or whatever she's doing working it out during sound check she actually sings some of the lyrics right, right. she says yeah. i can be cruel she's not just like humming or right. vocalizing so i'm wondering since this was pre certain events like what was inspiring that song who is being cruel to i don't know remind me in the playboy mommy demo does it kind of fade up I also could believe that it's just a layout issue because all of the songs, they have like shapes to them, mm-hmm. like in the booklet, the way they're laid out. They're geometric. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Song shapes. Um, we're here discussing Spark today. When was the first time you ever heard Spark? Ugh, you beat me to the punch. I was going to ask you first. I lost my Spark virginity in the backseat of a car. Um, remember back in the day when you things would actually premiere on the radio? I know that wasn't the case with Cotillite's Knees because they had like the real player thing, mm-hmm. but... Like K-Rock was going to be premiering it at a very specific date and time. And we were driving around in the car waiting for it to come on. And that's the first time I heard it. So it was very exciting. It was a premiere in the truest sense of the word. Mm, You were waiting for it. Yeah, I don't think we'd heard a sample, like a clip of it or anything. It was totally, totally brand new. So I was living in Albuquerque. I was young. It was my first job. And we had the radio playing. And I think they must have announced. And here's a new one by Toriumus. All of a sudden, nee, 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 nee. Me, me, me. And I was just like, what is, like, I stopped working. I remember just like running over to the little boom box and like just absorbing it. I was like, what? And it got a lot of radio play. At it least really did. I, yeah. Here in LA too. Yeah. And K-Rock played it every hour on the hour. I remember that. In in my memory, that's the most play she's gotten. That sort of fairy tale got played a lot too, but it was a big deal. Yeah. Like that um, whole era. Yes. Like th- those songs got played a lot, I mm-hmm. think, too. Raspberry Swirl. I've seen the Raspberry Swirl video on multiple occasions in places I never would expect to. Did you ever hear Raspberry Swirl on the radio? I did. I you have. did? Yeah. I never have. Heck yeah. No. Siri, play Tori Amos Radio. One moment. Tori Amos coming right up. Yeah. See, there it is right there. <laughs> wow. Amazing. <laughs> No, but Spark, I loved Spark. What was your initial impression? Again, kind of like the way we talked about Siren, there was a collective sigh of relief from our car. Yeah, like, oh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. 
It's definitely different, but we're all okay with it. Yeah, essentially. but it wasn't like a, she didn't sell out. And it was kind of as strange as ever, yeah. if you will. The lyrics, which again, kind of like Siren, this, especially for a lead single, we take them for granted now, but they were almost indecipherable. Like, I don't think anyone got Ice Cream Assassin or anything before we actually had the lyrics printed. Mm. Between that and the sort of processed effects on her vocals, it mm. made it even harder to mm. understand mm -hmm. what she was singing. Yeah. What did you think? I loved it from the jump. Yeah. Same thing, having a hard time deciphering the lyrics and figuring out exactly what she was saying all of the time, but I think I got the gist of it. I guess I didn't know that nicotine patches were a thing at the time because I had no idea what she was saying. And this is embarrassing to admit now, of course, looking back on it and I'm being my very vulnerable self. And I was like, is she saying pussy? Like I couldn't even... <laughs> Nicotine pussy? Yeah, like nicotine and pussy. I that's thought probably she, a thing too. At one point I had decided that that's what she had said. And my friend Heather looked at me and was like, um, she's not saying nicotine and pussy. Yeah, that is one like, addiction. You don't you... know. Wait till the booklet comes out. And that's she was one addiction you gotta shake. And I remember when I read nicotine patches feeling like, oh, well, obviously. But I had nicotine patches weren't in my realm of awareness. Mm -hmm. You were alive in so many ways, yet naive. Babe in the woods in so many right. others. That's true. <laughs> Spark, the first track on From the Quargo Hotel with drums by Matt Chamberlain, bass by Justin Meldel Johnson, acoustic and electric guitars by Stephen Caton, and sample guitar, Bosendorfer, and vocals by Tori Amos. Did you get that that was a sample guitar in the beginning? I did. Do you think Caton tried to reciprocate by playing a sample piano? <laughs> I, I just wonder on my toes, Amos. I just wonder why Steve didn't play that part. It doesn't sound like a guitar. Though. It doesn't sound like, like a guitar you at all. Until you read sample guitar, You're you like, wouldn't oh, think that was a guitar is. sound. It just sounds like generic synth program number two or something. Right, right. And I always take for granted that John Evans played on this album, no, even though yeah. I, I know he didn't. But I have to be reminded of that because he's such a significant part of this whole era mm -hmm. and the band unit as we came to know it. That mm -hmm. it's hard to believe that he didn't record. If there was anyone else. Yeah. And the, yeah, no John Evans at all. Yeah, and he wasn't, there was more than one bass player because George Porter played on some too, yeah. right? So Yeah, George Porter Jr. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have the lovely Shay Stymack to thank for these show notes, these wonderful show notes. She's poured her heart and soul as we do into these shows. So does Shay Stymack. Are we Are, back to calling her Shay Stymack? Yes. Was that a Torador exclusive? Shay Stymack? Yeah. That makes me feel sad. I miss Shasty Mac. I can't suffer the loss of both Bentley Helms and Shasty Mac well, in the same lifetime, let alone the same span of months. There's many other pronunciations to explore. Mm. We, of course, also have to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. This is going all the way back from our Boys for Pele wrap-up 2 episode. These are all the people that have joined our crazy little family since then. We'd like to say thank you to Sean Marjanian for upping his pledge. Hi, Sean. My three favorite Seans are as follows. Connery, Young, Marjanian. Amelia Groves, a new supporter. Amelia foxed me in her groves. Christian Van Eck, a new supporter. We're recovering Christian Van Eck's. James Lewis, a new supporter. Hi there, James. Brad Evans, a new supporter. Hi, Brad. Any relation to John? They both got that booty. Jason. Just Jason. <laughs> Amber E. Amber IIE. Hi, Amber. Sheldon Krieger upped his pledge. Sheldon Krieger Mellencamp. Hurt so good. The lovely Michael Earp, who sent us a wonderful email. Hi, Michael. Mary Ann Donnarumma is back. I can see sweet Mary Ann. Also, my favorite song by Donnarumma is Anything Anything. Lauren Ellis upped her pledge. Thanks, Lauren. If I was shipwrecked on Ellis Island, I'd want it to be with Lauren. We'd also like to say thank you to our new supporter, Rachel Lynn. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. 
Shauna Kundal. Do you think she does Kundalini yoga? Catherine McManus, who upped her pledge. Hi, Catherine. I'm a McManus of Catherine McManus. Catherine McManus is an incredible artist, and you should follow her on Instagram at Catherine's Photographs. Catherine with a C. She's got a lot of wonderful stuff that she's doing this year, so follow her there. David Grevengood, who's a new supporter. Hi, David. David. Hmm, what a lovely name. And our dearest Emily Cousins, who has upped her pledge. I'll take Emily Cousins by the dozens. Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for all your support. We couldn't, shouldn't, and wouldn't do this without you. And welcome to 2020. Should we tell people who our guests are today? Give me the list. You got it. So today we have some very special guests. Let's start big. Later on the show, we will have the one and only James Brown. Okay, he's not the one and the only. (laughs) But he's the only one who's directed a Tori video and it's james brown the director of the spark video amazing we also plan to wind down a little bit later with paul roy taylor our resident lyrics mean nothing in chief take it easy just wind down and of course super fans galore leaving voicemails talking on the show it's a big episode today yeah it is spark's a big song this is the vitamin string quartet performing their cover of spark which you can purchase on itunes or stream on spotify and you should do that here they are with spark I want to leave a couple of thoughts on Spark. It's one of those songs that really took on a new meaning for me when I started trying for kids. And this whole album, especially on this song, still really gets me because it reminds me of trying to find yourself again after something terrible has happened. And especially she's convinced she can hold back a glacier, but she couldn't keep baby alive. Downing if there's a woman in there somewhere really hits me hard because that's how I felt for seven years when I was trying for a kid and nothing was happening. So this song means a lot to me because yes, it reminds me of a bad time, but it makes me feel like this is somebody who is willing to talk about something that a lot of people don't like to talk about. A lot of people don't like to talk about miscarriages and actually how frequently that happens. It happens a lot more than most people think and people don't talk about it. And that line especially really gets me. And I really appreciate the Tori was willing to write something very personal to her, but also about something tragic that people don't like to talk about. All the songs have different characters? Oh yeah. Different characters even within them. They're not just, you know, a lot of people come in, in and out of each song and, um, So what character would uh, Spark have? Well, there are a few that that live in that song. I think more than anything, that girl's having a really bad day. And um, she doesn't know how or if she's going to see the end of that day. But there's this, um, you know, sort of action girl that comes out of her, refusing to um, not strive and stay on the planet. I think she realizes that she really doesn't want to leave the planet, that she'll take her problems with her if she leaves the planet. So Spark peaked at number 49 on the Billboard charts. Injustice. 
I think that's pretty high. No. It should be in the top five, if not number one. This is not a very commercial song. It certainly did not cross over. I wanted it to displace Mariah Carey. Is that what was I was going to ask you? Do you I don't know. know it was number but I'm, one assuming, this week? I'm assuming it was Mariah Carey. It could have been The Boy's Mind or something like that. Well, right? According to Wikipedia, it was too close by next. If that's what America's into, then I just have one thing to say. Yeah. Come on. Spark for me. She's addicted to nicotine patches. She's afraid of a light in the dark. She's addicted to nicotine patches. She's afraid of a light in the dark. Spark appears on the following physical media. There were CD singles released, parts one and two in the UK. I remember when we went on release day, they only had one copy of each, Mm -hmm. the limited edition UK Mm -hmm. and the regular, and we Mm -hmm. had to choose who was going to get which one based on the B-sides, of Mm -hmm. course. So... That's because there were two UK singles, one a limited edition that had Do It Again and Cooling, and then the regular unlimited edition (laughs) had... We're lousy with them. Bachelorette and Purple People Christmas in Space. And Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, right? Oh, yeah. And that's why the parentheses got swapped. I know that that's true, but I still like Purple People Christmas in Space. It works, right? Yeah, absolutely. Either way's fine. Yeah, and I think Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, parentheses Christmas in Space, would have been too... Too much Christmas. It would have been too on the nose. Yeah, like, we get what you're trying to do, girl. Although I will make a case for Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas being the link to to Venus and back. How so? She goes to space there. Oh, yeah. She transports herself into space, which she carries through the whole next record. Yeah, that's true. Yes. She was getting way ahead of herself. Spark also appears, of course, on From the Choir Girl Hotel, a promo 12-inch vinyl. Do you have it? I don't have the promo, but I have the regular release. Oh, yeah, Still the regular. sealed. The single? Oh, sorry. No, the whole album. Oh, yeah. I have two of the Choir Girl. One sealed, one unsealed. Mm-hmm. They fetch a pretty penny. But the Spark 12-inch vinyl has the regular album version and the instrumental version. Interesting choice of all the songs to release an instrumental. I know. Why doesn't she do that more or... Ever. Since then? Yes. Yeah, I know. It also appears on a CD and cassette single and a CD maxi single. There's an ambient version of Spark on the Cruel Raspberry Swirl CD single. It appears on Tales of a Librarian in November 2003 in a reworked Greatest Hits version. She's addicted to nicotine. She puts it on a piano in 2006. It appears on Six Legs and Boots. Damn. This song got around. She was walking around looking for that spark. Showed up in a lot of places. Yeah. Like, how can you not find it? It's here and Mm. here and here and there and here. And the version on a piano, if I recall correctly, is just like a remastered album version as opposed to the reworked librarian version, right? Right. The reworked librarian version. I wonder if there was more at stake in terms of working with Atlantic again and trying to give them something that 
You mean like she was forced to do something different? Or if she... I think the contract read that she had to give them like whatever greatest hits plus two new songs, Mm -hmm. which she did. But I wonder if there was like more at play in the way she remixed these things. But maybe not. Maybe she wanted to preserve her legacy in a different way. Mm. I think it's more of a matter of what her taste was at the time. time. And she was revisiting those past songs with her scarlet goggles on. And she was like, you know, if I were to do this now... I would drop the guitar in the mix. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you when you got the single... Again, it seems crazy to say it now because these songs have been with us for so long, but it sounded markedly different Mm -hmm. than anything she had done before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It didn't have that kind of pristine studio sound. First first three albums, they were processed. It sounded kind of like they were recorded, if not in space, in a a big empty space. There's like a lot of reverb. I don't know. Everything about it sounded different. Mm -hmm. The piano was definitely present, but it wasn't that kind of bombastic, booming classical piano of mm-hmm. the first three it was definitely like a rock album mm-hmm. i loved it it seemed looser too which in terms of the b-sides i guess it was there's also aside from christmas in space they're called like mcthirsty's mm-hmm. lounge b-sides mm-hmm. or something and that's definitely how they read as like a band kind of improvising together were you ready to grow with her towards a band were you ready to go rock and roll i don't think that i was and we've heard her say when she was considering bringing a band on stage, she was wondering if the audience was going to be like, who are these people? And that was kind of where I was with it. Even on the sneak preview show, mm-hmm. at the sneak preview show, I was excited, but I was still like, mm, I don't know if I'm mm. going to be able to take this change with these guys up on stage with her. And of course, it ended up being totally fine. I had the time of my life at the shows I went to, and it was amazing. The band was amazing. I was ready for the band. I love the dance mixes. I read I needed more I needed the guys. I needed drums, I needed guitars. It was time. Yeah. And she knew that. It went well. Interestingly enough, it seemed to be timed to kind of the height of her popularity to where she could fill a big venue and mm-hmm. like obviously you're gonna want to do that with a band. Yeah. I can imagine her having played like the pond in Anaheim with just her right. and the piano. I guess she did do that actually. Yeah. Because she played that venue for Acoustic Christmas mm-hmm. and it was just her. But still it was a totally different energy, totally different vibe. So And it was authentic and it was real and it was rocking. And she was having the time of her life. She was. Clearly. Oh yeah. she loved it. She <laughs> Loved it. As far as getting the singles, though, I remember I got them both and I cherished them. I remember wondering when we got the Polaroids, like if everybody had different Polaroids, thinking like, oh my God, maybe even constructing this fake narrative in my head that there were like a hundred Polaroids. And mm-hmm. then, but everybody that I knew loved Tori Amos at that point. And my friend Liz also had the CD single and had the same postcards. So I think maybe I squelched that right away. Thank God we didn't have to fight over that one of her bending over, grasping her knees. <laughs> Everyone got it. All right. I have always thought that the cover for the limited edition single where it's just kind of her face sort of pulled back and you can't see her eyes. It's just the lips with her arms over her head. I always thought that if there was any other photo that would have made a great album cover, that would have been my choice. What do you Mm. think? Yeah, that's the one with Do It Again, right? Yes. I think that's probably my favorite image of all of the images. I like this one a lot and I like the one where she's got the, it's like a blue and white outfit. She's got a pencil or a pen. Mm -hmm. It's like she's taking an order. Right. Like, what would you like in your album? (laughs) Ooh, breakfast every hour, you say? Okay. I can do that. This is from Rumba, March 13th, 1998. 
Some of the songs on the new album are confusingly innocent and others seem to be very calm. And she says, it is strange because I knew about my pregnancy at a very early point, just in a couple of days. So I became attached to the baby without being conscious of the danger. I didn't even think that losing the baby was possible. And when that happened, of course, no one can be prepared for that. You have no idea how to feel about such a loss. The love I felt for that life had not ended. I knew that the love had changed me. I had never before been able to love and to give myself at the same time. Now I had to give myself because I don't know what else to do. At first you start blaming, then you get angry. I yelled at every existing God, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Celt, and I attracted them all. I had a lot of questions. Sometimes you see how people beat their children up in a mall and there is no sense in it. Why some kids are taken from the loving parents and why children are given to those who are treating them badly. That is all a part of the big mystery of life. Nowadays, I'm much more peaceful about death. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine said to me that now that you understand death a lot better, if I was going to die, I really would like to meet you. That person was right. For the last year, I've been talking to a non-physical being, to the spirit of my child. What do you think about that quote? I'm always taken back to how deeply spiritual of an artist Tori is. And I absolutely believe that she was having some version of a conversation with all of these deities in this moment. And it's heartbreaking to think that she just sort of dragged herself through the mud throughout the process of Pele. And then her very next circumstance is to have to deal with like yet another, yet another trauma or another journey to kind of dig deep and find her woman's worth. You have to think too, like, thank God that she had the music to heal or whatever she was going through, you know? Like she's been through hell and back to get to Boys for Pele and to go through something this heavy again. Yeah. And we know that we get the benefit of it, thankfully, but I think the music still is and always has been medicine for Tori herself, first yeah. and foremost. Yeah. And she just happens to let us in on it. I think what was so great about listening to Spark for the first time was that you felt that even though she was with a band and even though it was a lot more rock and roll, quote unquote, it still felt very personal. And it still felt very intimate and therefore recognizable as Tori and then comforting too. Posted to the Dent from Stephanie, April 28, 1998. I do have to say, however, that it seems like everyone is into Tori's new single, Spark. I mean, out of all the responses you listed from Tori Files, only a couple were in negative light. I myself have not been impressed with what is distinctively her new sound. How can Tory fans blindly cover their eyes and say, this is not a new Tory, she sounds the same. All I can say to that is bull. Where the hell is the piano? I can barely hear it in this song. The harpsichord, the breathy wisps of air following lines of rage, the little tinkling escapades on the ebony and ivory. Where? This new song of hers has too much of a grunge sound, a time to sell out song, kind of disappointing. The music is good, don't misunderstand but it at many times overpowers her voice. That is my main beef. I hate that. And also it played in my car. I have a very nice sound system and I found I had to blast it to hear her voice. But then the music itself sounded all distorted. I hated that too. Yes, the song is good. I mean, hey, it's Tori for God's sake. It's got to be good. But I sure hope that there are songs on the new CD that I will be more impressed with. Songs that will be more Tori. Tori, please don't sell out. Thanks for allowing me to vent, Mike. Let's read this quote from Red Dragon Radio, UK, April 6th, 1998. Okay. The first release we got is Spark. That's going to be coming out Monday, April the 20th. What's it all about, Tori? Well, I think it's finding that little piece of magic. 
I miscarried about a year and a half ago, and I think I was really trying to find the spirit of this baby. Did you find that this was a way of dealing with your grief then, to get it down with words and music? Yeah, it was. I mean, the whole record was really about... I really respected life in a way that I hadn't before. I mean, it's strange when something like that happens. The love doesn't go away. It's strange in that way, so it's not like you're left with nothing. It's funny because you mentioned this in the primer too, giving these girls actual physical identities may be because she wasn't unable to bring human life into the world. She's bringing these song lives into the world and they are taking shape as actual girls in her mind, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel a lot of that in the quote here. It's strange in that way. So it's not like you're left with nothing, she says. But instead here she's got 12 plus song girls. Not that that's a substitution, obviously. Clearly it's a way of healing, you know. I have never considered that the spark may in fact be the spirit of the child. Never? Or the baby. No, not until I've read this quote or the way she worded it here specifically. What in this quote? Oh, I, I see. I was trying to find the spirit of the baby. Oh, yeah. Are you well, sure where my spark is? The spark as the spirit of the baby. That's never occurred to that's me before. never occurred to you? No. You know, she said that she miscarried at 6.58. She looked over at the clock and it was 6.58. Has she actually said that? Yeah. I always assumed, but I didn't no, know that we actually quote. had that there's confirmed. A quote. I think we have that quote here somewhere. Okay. The piece at the end about the love having to go somewhere is heartbreaking to me, too. Mm-hmm. This is from Music Week, April 11th, 1998. Amos says many of the songs from the album came about as a result of the miscarriage she had after recording Boys for Pele. That made me look at things differently, Amos says. It put me in touch with a more primitive feminine side and I started to watch for rhythms. There's a life force in the music and rhythm of these songs which reflects my feeling that birth and death are mysteries of life which are constantly happening. She says, I can't believe there was a more feminine primitive force that she hadn't gotten in touch with after Boys for Pele. I know, right? We were in the underworld searching for our femininity. Do you think what she means by that? I would say Pele, above all, is kind of an album about destruction. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe like creation coming from destruction, but this mm-hmm. is kind of the flip side. This is that creation piece. Mm-hmm. And this album, I think she has said, is more about a respect for life. So maybe that's what she means by more primitive, kind of like the great mother, if or, you will. Yeah, or primitive, I took to mean just that there is a cycle of life, of life and death, and that she had never really considered before. Here she says, these songs reflect my feeling that birth and death are mysteries of life which are constantly happening. It seems like it's new to her. The idea that death happens in any tangible way is new to her. Well, it's very abstract until you actually have yeah. to experience it. So yeah. you have no idea how you're going to react or what the experience is going to actually be like yeah. until it happens. And if she is spending three months with a baby, excited about this child, bonding with this child, I mean, it's devastating, obviously, to suffer that loss. Yeah. You want to read this from the Boston Globe? April 28th, 1998. In another song, Spark, the album's first single, Amos addresses the issue again. She's convinced she could hold back a glacier, but she couldn't keep Baby alive. The song is typically autobiographical, despite the third-person reference, and prompts Amos to say of her character, she's very close to the edge, but she's not over the edge yet. Which I think is an important distinction. You know, we've all, as Tory fans, have encountered those people in our lives who are very dismissive of the music, maybe, or say it all sounds the same, and I think they hear a woman over the edge, but I think it's very important that she's not over the edge yet. Tells me that this song is about healing, like to bring yourself back before you go over the edge, kind of. In that way, it's like all of Tori's music is about strength and healing. Whereas like if you're someone who doesn't connect to the music, you may have dismissed it as whining or complaining. We've all heard it. You know what? Even if she was over the edge, what is wrong with that? 
Why are people so quick to dismiss women in particular? Are we also uncomfortable with our feelings? That yes. when someone's, that's what it is. When yes. someone's really expressing something, it makes people uncomfortable. And they're like, well, she's over the edge. There she goes, <laughs> ranting again. Right. Call me when you calm down. Especially women. No, that's true. I feel like because men kind of control the music industry, it's easier to dismiss women as sort of, oh, you're being hysterical. Not just complaining, but like... You're too emotional. Yeah, or... like it's just using these women's words. You know, obviously I find Tori's music to be very healing about healing and about strength and empowerment um otherwise i wouldn't be here <laughs> literally here <laughs> why don't you read this from q magazine may 1998 okay once you felt life in your body you can't go back to having been a woman that's never carried life the other thing is feeling something dying inside you and you're still alive obviously when it was happening it was already over but in your mind you don't know that yet you're doing anything thinking, oh God, maybe if I put a cork up myself, maybe it'll keep this little life in. That's why in Spark I say, she's convinced she could hold back a glacier, but she couldn't keep baby alive. You just start going insane. There's nothing you can do, so you surrender and then start again. A key theme too, I think, in this album, as we go through it, we can talk more about it. The idea of surrendering. Surrendering to the cycle of life like you can't change anything there mm -hmm. is life and there is death mm -hmm. and something about when we were doing the primer There was a quote that just brought it home to me Like it's not just about the rhythm of the water and the waves Equaling the rhythm of the drums, but it's about the rhythm of life and the cycle of life Being reflected in the rhythm on the album that there is a rhythm to life. Yeah Yeah, and there's something about there's a quote in the primer where we, it just kind of brought that home to me for sure and if you want to think about you know the rhythm and cycle of the tides and then you take that up a level and tie it to the rhythm and cycle of the moon and mm -hmm. you can kind of keep like moving the camera out mm. further and further into the universe yeah and you see like your part in everything which is minuscule or is it the most important i don't know i don't know yeah two sides of the same coin we are nothing but we are everything like everything that we are is everything there is but then also in the grand scheme of things, are we nothing? That's the universal question. It sure is, but I'm willing to s sort of propose an answer, which is at least to say not really, but I don't get what the purpose is of ever feeling like our lives, our human lives, or my individual life is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Like then what are you supposed to do? Why are you here then? Right, well, I think there's a huge purpose to that. Not all the time, like you can't walk around feeling insignificant. Obviously everything that you do matters and your life means something to you. But if you just were to look at yourself like as you had described pulling out and pulling out and pulling out and see that oh you are but a speck we are all but a speck then it kind of makes the day-to-day -day problems seem less important and then maybe it allows you to relax i think is the point of looking at things like that right yes but that just makes me want to propose like a it's a wonderful life slash butterfly effect experiment like if you removed anyone's life out of the world but left everything else the same, all else being equal to see like what everyone else's experience would be without you. And like the profound ripple effect that you've had on other people, whether you know it or not, is probably much, much bigger than you would ever know. The way you've rippled me is bigger than you Ew, <laughs> ever I've know. never rippled You're you. You're rippling me right now. I've never rippled you, ladies see, you and don't gentlemen. don't know it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not true. It's a rumor. We never rippled. <laughs> this is from Deluxe. It May. meant nothing to you, I guess. <laughs> This is from Deluxe, May 1998. I'm cutting that. Spark is about when I miscarried in 1996. I was three months pregnant and very excited. All of a sudden, I woke up one morning and started to feel bad. The song started coming soon after. I was really angry at God. Going into a shopping mall and seeing some woman knock the head off her child, I'm going, so this is fair? I don't know where the spirit went, whether she picked another mummy like, okay, choose her then. Hope you're tone deaf. 
That's funny. Kind of. I think funny in the way she intended, and it's so candid. Like, yeah. she's not in a place of like, well, everything happens for the best. Like, she's bitter about it and angry and willing to be kind of spiteful and be like, well, good for you. Hope you're tone deaf because right. could have had me. Could have had me. Yeah, and I Thinking think that's that such a natural... Per- perfect pitch lullabies. <laughs> I think that's such a natural response to have, too, and she doesn't censor herself here. There's a lot revealed in this quote, if we kind of pick it apart. She says, I was really angry at God. There was a Christian magazine and I did try to find it, but I couldn't, maybe if one of our listeners knows what I'm talking about, they can send it over. But there's like a Christian magazine or a newspaper that quoted Tori Amos in her lyrics as saying, if the divine master is perfection, maybe next I'll give Judas a try to talk about how she was leading kids to Satanism. But people were like, no, it's the divine master plan. But they specifically quoted her as saying, if the divine master is perfection, maybe next I'll give Judas a try. I mean, either way. Either way, but like that stings a little bit more, right? Yeah, like that, yeah. that hits their point yeah. home a little bit more. I and love I, Tori as this like insane Pied Piper of Satan. Yeah. Like ushering the satanic us all to church. hell of all people. Yeah. I've told you I went to shows on the plug tour where there were protesters with signs claiming that she was like a witch. And That's like, ridiculous. Really? But did you go to the shows on the plug tour where she was sacrificing the pigs? Oh, yeah. I remember yeah, that. Those oh. were good. I love a luau. <laughs> but I remember thinking how absurd it was and how could you, like who in their right mind but this quote reveals, I was really angry at God. I think a lot of people have, up to this point in her career, misinterpreted her as being either a non-believer or against the entity of God or whatever. Whereas I think her battle has been with the organized Christian church, right? Yeah, 100%. So You're this, so right. This quote solidifies there is a belief in God. She wasn't saying if there was a God or God, if he were to exist. She says, I was angry at God. And that just reveals that she believes. And how can she not? She grew up in that church. I think people kind of willfully filter that out because it seems more like, ooh, transgressive and mm-hmm. dangerous. Like she's an mm-hmm. atheist mm-hmm. or she, you know, speaks out against God and Christianity, which is kind of true, but you're absolutely right. It's more about the organization and the power that it holds over people and the damage that it does, not the idea. And the lies that it tells too. Yeah, and not the idea of God itself, which she says that in the Little Earthquakes video, she actually says, I'm, I'm not, not about, about the institutionalized, institutionalized church, church at, at all. all. You got the inflection perfect, David. <laughs> she doesn't say, P.S. I don't believe in God, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you read this from Spin, May 1998. I played the K-Rock Christmas show three months pregnant and I was just on cloud nine, she says, but back home, two days before Christmas, the cramping and bleeding started and Amos knew immediately what was wrong. I was so freaked out that I didn't let my boyfriend drive the truck to the hospital. I drove just because it was the only thing, long, long, really long pause. You're just willing your body to keep this life, but it's like, Tori, it's over. You sit there and go, maybe it'll be okay. And you're one of those ones where it just wasn't okay. When something's going wrong, having to be in control of the one thing that you can control. And that's why she drove. Mm. She's unable to control anything else. At least this, like, let me do this. Yeah. Like, let me get it myself to the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. Because then she's out of control if Mark doesn't drive fast enough. It's just like... Interesting kind of that she refers to him as her boyfriend. I guess he was at the time, but at this point they're married or she could just refer to him as Mark. But I feel like that's part of what we discussed. Her sort of drawing the curtain a little more than she had in the past, Mm -hmm. especially where he is concerned, Mm -hmm. to not name him any more than she has to. 
And I'm also su- not surprised because I was at that K-Rock show. You know, of course, I know exactly what she's talking about and I can picture it, not physically, but that performance was so wild and unhinged. And, you know, if you ever want an example of Demon Tori, yeah, that's kind of the first any, place any you could minute go, of that show. especially losing my religion, though. Like, God. it is wild. And I'm just wondering, because it seemed like she was in a very happy place looking back on it and what she's saying now. Like, she was finished with Tori. Yeah, like, that's Cloud she Nine. She was looking for, like, yes, this is Tori on Cloud right. Nine. Ah! For anyone who thinks she needs to suffer to turn in a good right. performance, think again. Because this is her happy. <laughs> it surprises me to hear her say that because of how Demon Tori shows up so much in that show. I never was into the Demon Tori thing. There was a Microsoft Paint video made where like her head gets bigger. Remember, it was like a stick figure Tori. <laughs> I think to losing my religion from K-Rock and it just gets bigger and finally her head explodes. Do you remember that video? No, I'm not sure that I do. It was like a short video that somebody in the community made i can't remember if anyone has it please send it to us i love that video it's like a stick figure tori playing and then like as she gets more and more wild her head gets bigger and bigger until it explodes (laughs) it's so great um the article goes on to say you want to continue the rest of the article in those horrible weeks after the miscarriage the songs just started coming and they came from all corners i'm calling this record from the choir girl hotel because i felt like i didn't know if i was sending dispatches from it or if I'm part of their troupe and they let me sing alto with them sometimes. Tori's never been an alto. She's not an alto. Never has been. But the choir girls were incredibly comforting to me. What they told her, she says, was, look, you can't be a mother right now, but you can be a woman. Not a little girl anymore, or an adolescent, or a girl on the verge of womanhood. Who would play Spark in the movie from our current pool of modern actresses? Oh my God, that's such a good <laughs> such a good question. I'm gonna have to really think seriously. We're on gonna it. do this for all the girls, obviously. Oh man, we're gonna Who cast would play them Spark all. Spark in the movie version Ooh. of from the Choir Girl. And Hotel. then we're gonna have to put a graphic together with like the outline of a hotel with all the empty rooms and like put them in there. Oh yeah, right? yeah. Okay, Mackenzie Davis. Okay, interesting. I think Firuza Balk. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> present day for Uzabal? No, no, no. How about, I think it would have to be someone like really strung out or who can play really strung out, you know, or like desperate. See, I'd go more that direction for an IIE, for example. Oh no. I feel like Spark, she pulls it together by the end and mm. she's going to, she's going to get herself out of this. She's not like Tori herself said, she's not over the edge. What about Margot Robbie? Yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah. I can support that for right. sure. Margot Robbie would be really good. From the Chicago Tribune, May 17, 1998. Your albums are full of dialogues with the divine, and every time, God lets you down. Like on Spark, you sing, if the divine master plan is perfection, maybe next I'll give Judas a try. If God were human, you would have dumped him a long time ago. Tori laughs and says, <laughs> you're right. After I lost the baby, it was really the final straw. In a sense, I have a lot more compassion for the Christian deity because he's off my altar. I don't have an altar anymore, but I see the sacredness in just the simple things in the day. Sometimes people are really cut off from wanting to look at their monsters, at their demons, at the divine in them. When I began to understand the Christian God is a fragment of the divine, that was the least arrogant with religion that I have ever been. I have a margarita regularly with him and it feels much better because although we're only human beings, and I'm only a human woman, I think there are things that the Christian God can learn from us. I wouldn't confront this hierarchy of humans and deities before, but when I lost the baby, there was nothing you could hold against me at that point. I had no fear in confronting any force. There's an incredible amount of anger on the planet and you can't purge it. You have to integrate it. 
And it's only gotten worse. The amount of anger the on the planet. The amount of anger on this planet. Just when we think it can't get any worse, it seems to. Yeah. I mean, it constantly is getting worse and worse and worse. We have a quote from 1992. We read one of the Little Earthquakes episodes where Tori talks about, like, what a shithole the planet is. Yeah. And that was almost 30 years ago. It's yeah. like, well, get ready, lady. I'm sorry. We need to play, like, the record scratch tape rewind sound here where Tori talks about taking the Christian God off her altar. Do you think that's what she's talking about in Alamo when she says, alter that altar? Since Paley's about sort of re-examining her relationships with all men, including male deities, that she finally took the Christian god off her altar and had nothing more to say to him. I don't know, because the timeline doesn't sync up. She's saying, like, I finally took him off the altar because this happened to me and you couldn't hold anything against me at that point. There was no one. I was hunting for answers from everywhere, everyone, every construct. Maybe she was ready to take him off the altar. Do you think? Yeah, in this quote, I feel like it's already happened. She's at a point where she's already sort of fundamentally changed her relationship with the Christian God for sure. Mm -hmm. So she didn't have a sense of compassion because she'd already taken him off her altar. So she was Mm. ready to take him to task. For everything, right? Mm -hmm. For all the choices he's made. From Alternative Press, July 1998. You want to read this quote? In your writing, you're really fleshing out characters that live inside you, even if they pass through for a very short time, she explains. Sometimes they don't live inside me. Sometimes I'm just fascinated by the raw material they carry. We force people too much, I think, to try to be one thing all the time, instead of always growing, taking responsibility for all of our characters. One early response to Spark mystified her, though. Somebody asked, You say you don't want it again and again, but you don't really mean it. Is that about date rape? Whoa! What kind of sins are you trying to wash over your hands? Hey, if that's your experience. But I wasn't getting that from any level of the song. But this is a free-thinking world. But that's weird that someone would get that from the song. Especially from a Tory song, of all places. We recently got an email from one of our Patreon supporters, Michael Earp, who said that he loves listening to our shows, even though in our interpretations, we never get to his interpretation. Never? It just made me realize like how many different interpretations of the song. I feel like we're very thorough and we cover every possible interpretation. Can I give you an example? No. Well then. Well. (laughs) (laughs) From Rolling Stone Online, August 8th, 1998. You certainly have fans who are devoted, who are listening really closely to your songs. Are the cryptic lyrics a way of addressing your real fans without revealing too much to outsiders? This is a good question, right? She says, I think the last album, Boys for Pele, was very much like that. That record was very much about trying to understand a serious breakup that I had with someone I had been with for a long time. I was trying to find parts and pieces of myself that I had never claimed. I'd been living through other people in my life, particularly the men in my life. So it was a really tough record, very depressing. But in the end, it gave me a lot of strength. It was a real tough journey. One of those where you think you're going to bite your own arm off, and you just hope somebody is there to put a muzzle in your mouth, but nobody put a muzzle in my mouth and I made boys for Pele. After that, I think that this record, as far as lyrics go, is not as abstract. Even though there's a lot of symbolism in it, there are moments when I turn around and I say something like, she's convinced she could hold back a glacier, but she couldn't keep baby alive. Really clear. There are moments when it gets really clear and it goes back into symbolism again. Ballerinas that have fins that you'll never find, which makes a lot of sense to me because it's obviously a mermaid reference, but it's more than that. Maybe you'll be a mother and you'll never have that physical experience. Like you'll never have the experience of being a mermaid. But even though you might not be a physical mother, it doesn't mean you can't have that kind of maternal love. One last question. Who is the ice cream assassin? Who do you think that is? I have no idea. Well, people have been praying to him for a very long time, and more wars have been fought in his name. The big guy. Think about it. Interesting. I'm so glad that we're through the Boys for Pele era and we can go from biting our arms off to biting people's butts. Mm. I never bit my own arm off. 
Me and either. I'm really glad that nobody put a muzzle on Tori. That quote also appeared later in the magazine, even though that what we read was from online. It then was in the magazine. Do you remember the magazines? Do you remember when Tori was on the cover of magazines? Remember when she thought she wouldn't have to be with me? A magazine? This is from the Illinois Entertainer, September 1998. I think as a writer, if you're going to put out work that's based around something, for you not to say what it's based around is like, you know, are we playing telepathic mystery record? When I sing things like she's convinced she could hold back a glacier, but she couldn't keep baby alive, I think that's really clear. To not be honest about it, well, it would drive me insane to do hundreds of interviews and backpedal about it. There's a lot of times where she hasn't revealed what something is about. More often than not, I would say, in fact... Right? Yeah, I think she definitely, you know, tends to pick and choose. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes she'll just like reflect it back to you. Like, what do you think it's about? Right. Like we just read about. What do you want it to mean? Yeah. But like when you ask her about, like, tell me who Blood Roses is about. She's not going to give you a straight up answer. She's like, wait, hang on. We'll get to Blood Roses. Don't you want to know who Poppy is? Poppy is? is? Yeah, exactly. So you wrote Professional Widow about Courtney Love. Allegedly. Allegedly. It honestly depends on the day. Right. The same way a song request does. Yeah. Same with an interview question. One day she might just roll her eyes and the next day she'll say like, I'm never going to talk about this in such detail, detail again, again. But here everything. you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what do you take from this quote though? I feel like she established early on with little earthquakes and maybe that was her problem, let's say. She was very candid and forthcoming with what her experience and the songs were about. So you can't kind of really go back from that. That's who she was right. as an artist. Mm. So if she had taken sort of a different approach from the beginning mm -hmm. how do you think she would have felt about that for example using one of her contemporaries let's say a polly harvey she will not talk about what her songs are about if anyone asks what inspired them if there's anything personal she'll put a cigarette out on your face i know she will and she'll say no <laughs> i've and seen then, her do it i've yeah. seen her shock a crowd of people i have been personally terrified by polly harvey i know like, directed at me i know personally tell the story but if anyone asks her what inspired a song or if there's anything of her personal experience in them, she says no. And like, I refuse to believe that that's true. Of, of course. Her. Maybe not so much as Tori, but for right. sure, obviously there's some of her personal experience woven through there. And Tori could be well within her rights to say like, I'm a storyteller. No. And that's not what she's saying here. She's saying, what are we playing? Mystery telepathic record? Yeah. I gotta tell you everything. That's a shitty game. I've played it. <laughs> really kills a party. Really does. No, you're right. Do you want to tell the PJ Harvey story? Oh, she was walking into a venue and you know, we're spoiled by Tori. She'll stop and talk to you. She'll sign. And I was under no illusion that Polly Harvey was going to be like warm and fuzzy, but she stopped and I was like, can you sign this? My copy of Rid of Me? I didn't say my copy of Rid of Me, but that's what I was handing to her. And she like stared at me while taking it, like not looking down at the CD, still holding my eye contact and just stared down, signed it handed it back, never said a word, and can you continued on, and I almost like peed a little bit. It was like so scary. I was like, what is she? She might punch me when she's done signing it. It's like the wheels were turning. I could see her thinking like, am I going to sign this? Well, I guess I've stopped. So what am I going to do if I don't? Then right. I will have to say something. Right. So. <laughs> anyway, it was terrifying. From Stepping Out, 4th of November, 1998. The miscarriage is really the seed of this record, and to not come forward and explain would be really exhausting. I wouldn't be telling the truth. I think you feel something when you hear the record, and if I didn't come clean, something wouldn't make sense when you listen. The album helped me heal the whole thing because I really feel her presence. She was a little girl, she is a little girl on some plane, and even though I'll never hold her physically, I really do feel her. Some days I miss her because she taught me so much. She taught me more than a lot of people have ever taught me. Wow. These quotes are pretty, they're very sad. All of this stuff is very sad. But I, what comes out of this quote to me is her just 
complete honesty. The miscarriage was the seed of the work. And to understand the work, you have to understand what I was going through. And so I want you to understand the work. So I'm going to give you this key to mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really respectful of the fans. Also, it would probably be exhausting to not mention it in interviews to like have to work around it, you know, but also like just it shows her as a person as just an open and honest and generous person. And that's why we relate to her the way we do and why she has the fan base that she does, right? Because she is open and kind of going back to what we were saying at the top of the show about like her music being medicine for herself and therefore for us too. The same is true of her being willing to talk about her experience. Like it would be so different, kind of like she's saying, if she just dropped an album out into the world and never said a word about it. Mm -hmm. But we get the benefit of listening to her and relating to her experience. And there's nothing more powerful than anyone telling you their story and you feeling like you relate to it or you're not alone or whatever that is. She chose to be that person and that artist early on, I think, thankfully. Do you think we would relate to her the way that we do if she were, for example, say, like a PJ Harvey who may not be as open with her fans or will not explain what her songs are about? If if she had just dropped Boys for Pele and never done any of that press or gone so deep into what it was about, do you think we would have connected with that album as much, honestly? I think it would be different. Based on my experience with the music, even like the first song that I heard, I know that for me, it first and foremost is about the music and the way it makes me feel. And as much as I love other artists and their music, it's never quite the same. And like who Tori is as a person, as an artist is just kind of like the cherry on the cake that makes the connection and the intimacy like that much stronger. But I do think I would still have the same reaction to the album, even if she wasn't talking about Blood Roses for two pages in B-Side Magazine or whatever it is. That makes it like a richer experience, but I don't think it would be diminished without that. I'm willing to say that I take the opposite side. I love the album. Obviously, I love Boys for Pele, and I loved it ever since I heard it. But I think knowing what it's about makes it that much more relatable and visceral to me. It's like I can go into the songs because I know the circumstances, and I know like what she's trying to achieve or what she's saying deep down, and then it makes it more real in my life. So I take the opposite stance. Like I would love the album, as I do with PJ Harvey's To Bring You My Love, for example. Another perfect album but I, I'm not t- here talking about it years and years later. Right, right. And there wouldn't be a way to do that. Right. Like the only reason we, why we can do this show primarily is because there Tori are so has many given quotes. us like such a wealth of information. Exactly. If we were going to talk about To Bring You My Love, we would read through the track list and the credits and then be like, well, well should we do a line by yeah. line? Or... <laughs> <laughs> we could do it all in one episode. Should we do a special breakdown of other artists? Maybe we could try it and just see what the experience is like. Or what the response is like. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want us to break down any other song, let us know. Email us, songsoftoramus at gmail.com. You want to read this from the Lowell Sun? It's not like I knew it would happen or that I called my manager a day later and said, hey, book the studio time. I know what the record's going to be about, she says. But the songs did just sort of start coming. I was just sitting there, kind of shocked and heartbroken, and the songs came. It was probably three weeks after, and Pandora was the first then Spark, and Playboy Mommy. But the big thing about the miscarriage is that it freed me from religious subservience. It was, hey, the wolf will show up at your door. And whenever anybody said anything like it's all for the better, I just wanted to say, thank God you're not a poet. In the end, after the sadness, she was moved by the experience. I really still feel connected with her, the baby, still feel close to her, and I started appreciating the life force in another way. That resonates with me a lot when people say, well, it's all for the best or it'll all work out in the end or all these other cliches or this line that she says really resonates with me. Thank God you're not a poet. That doesn't make me feel better. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything or move me in any way. Is that what you take from this? Yes, for sure. 
that does nothing other than to try to gloss over the way I'm feeling. I think that's a piece of it, but for some people too, it may also just be like, you feel like you're supposed to say something and you don't know what, and that ends up, that's all you can come up with. And in that case, it is better to say nothing. So let's talk about this. On March 25th, 2002, Tori was seen on a brief five-minute film on Channel 4 in the UK called The Slot Miscarriage. The Slot Miscarriage comprises of four films directed by Joe Terry for dual-purpose productions. The first five minutes of the film was shown on Monday, March 25th, 2002, and in it, Tori Amos talked about her miscarriage experiences. Clunky and Heather have sent Mike Y a transcript of everything, so you can find that still. But here, let's just play this and let's talk about it, David. Okay. The first time um, I miscarried, I was in the first trimester near the end, and um, I was at the beach, and something didn't feel right, and I realized that I had started to bleed, and so I called the doctor. He had me come in. They do the scan. And I looked up at the nurse, and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, I'm so sorry. It's all very thief in the night stuff, because you go into an emergency room or whatever, and you walk in thinking that you're an ecosystem and you walk out completely barren and empty. The physical impact got tougher with each miscarriage so that by the third, I think I was at my physical breaking point. You know, you get revved up and then the crash and then the emptiness. There's no coffin. There's no outward symbology. There's no kind of ritual. There's just you and your partner. It's not necessarily a reality for anybody else. Very few people know how to respond to it. There's not a lot of awareness on it. It's that taboo kind of thing. And nobody wants it to happen to them, so it's kind of like you've got the plague. Like, can, can you catch it? If you said to me, is there anything positive about all that? I think it's made me appreciate life. It knocks you for six, but if you choose the wisdom out of the wound, then there is healing and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But you don't see it when you're in the trenches. I mean, you know, there is a dark night of the soul, and you have to walk that. Although I wasn't able to bring them to physical life, I was able to bring them into song form and their songs that are written about them that I play even now then you turn around death into some kind of expression of life it's really heartbreaking to hear that I mean she's so filled with emotion even you know so long after it's six years later mm -hmm. I guess you never get over anything like that or anything that traumatic yeah, that was difficult to watch, but she's so kind of open with her experience and generous and being willing to share it. Do you think she gets tired of people asking her about it or 
if she's not in the right mental space for it, can kind of feel rude. I mean, like, to be asked about your traumatic experiences, just, like, out of the blue by some random reporter. Like, tell me about your trauma. I know, and it's tricky because it's part of, you know, the narrative, let's say, of the album that she was promoting. So she's offering it. But not in 2002. Right, but I mean, once it's out there. Because it's hard to kind of recall it. If you find this clip, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see like she does kind of break down into tears at one point. Mm-hmm. And it's it just has got to be kind of... I wonder if you're given a list of questions. If you give her a list of questions like we want to talk... Because sometimes when we interview people, we give them lists of questions. They uh-huh. want to know what we're prepared to talk about. I wonder if it's the same for her. And if they do, if like miscarriage is at the top of that. Or yeah. traumatic experience surrounding me and a gun traumatic experience surrounding spark at this point i'm sure she's used to it i hate to say that but since she's kind of offered it um i think it's just something that she expects to talk about maybe we don't i mean i can't say that i know for sure but it seems like it's a possibility at least that maybe it helps her work through it talking about it i was gonna say that too because she specifically mentions that it's you know kind of isolating and people don't talk about it so i think sharing your story and hearing other people's story is always very healing so it may actually serve that purpose for her yeah so before we get into the line by line i would like to introduce our audience to our new segment it's called 10 questions about and then the name of the song that we're doing Michael, introduce yourself to the people. Hi, I'm Michael Carley. I live in Los Angeles, a month away from turning 29. Michael, what makes Spark unique? Spark, I feel, is unique for its moment in history, which is, of course, not something I was watching at the time in 1997 and why I can't wait to hear this episode. But I think to hear the piano kind of absent and the guitar in front, that chronic crash in of like the the lower range is such a huge moment. I feel like she was hiding that, that piano to be a little coy with the new band and to throw it in there. I don't know. That's like a hugely singular musical Tory moment for me. What are some random fun facts about you that would explain your love of Spark? I have absolutely been addicted to nicotine patches at certain points of my life, which is just another way of saying I've never successfully quit, though I've had my dalliances with the nicotine patches, so that certainly always hits, uh, hits home. What's something you wish you knew about Spark, but you don't? I'm going to go with ballerinas that have fins that you never find. I think, I think I'm getting at the idea. I think I've read a quote of it, but I feel like I have a good idea about Ice Cream Assassin. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask my lifeline over ballerinas. Would you rather listen to Spark forever and no other Tori Amos song ever, or have Spark erased entirely from the catalog, but leave everything else? (gasps) Oh, oh, that's so sad. But I mean, it's like, it's one versus like a thousand. I'm gonna have to stick with the majority. But damn, that is a tragedy. No one else sticks with the majority, America. (laughs) Have you heard the one about the terrible electrician I met last night? No. Yeah, there were no sparks. What's something that bugs you about Spark? I can't think of a single thing, not to be a a poor sport. It's such a huge moment for me, for her, lyrically too. I can't pick a, I can't even pick a thread out of it. Where is the most beautiful place you can imagine in the world listening to Spark? Spark is a nighttime song, and I don't think I want um, a skylight. I think I want to be alone. So I'm going to go like Iceland, 
nighttime side of the road. Who is a special person in your life that you've never shared Spark with and why? I don't think I've ever shown my sister. Um, maybe she would find it useful and valuable in her life. I'm going to do that. And finally, what's the most memorable place you've ever listened to Spark? I have one true memory of it. Um, on the 101 in LA. Off the, like, the 405 junction coming onto 101 West, I was really like cruising, cruising. It was late at night, like one or two. So kind of bombing down that curve. I know you're familiar, but for listeners who aren't, it's this big, full 90 degree turn on a highway. And I like saw the moon burst into view when I made that like westward turn with spark blaring. It's very it's always gonna be tied to that for me. It's DPH VMV BVU on Instagram or <laughs> the first letter of every Bjork album in order. Find Michael Carley there. You got it. Thank you so much. She's a We've talked about in the past whether or not Tori has ever smoked. And we both have a memory of seeing a picture of her with like a cigarette sticking out of her right. pocket or whatever. And the rest of the song is so personal. And she does kind of at some point shift between she and me or I. But I have to believe she's really the only character in this song and that she's singing about herself. Are yeah. we talking about literal nicotine patches? Who knows? I guess doesn't matter. But I guess in this case, it's like becoming dependent on something that's supposed to help you that ultimately becomes like yet another addiction or right. something you have to work through. Absolutely. Yeah. It is in the third person. We begin in the third person. She is addicted to nicotine patches. Like you, I do believe that the song is about Tori Amos herself and she is Tori Amos. The musician is singing about Tori Amos, the person, right? But who is the character that's observing? I have to believe that there's another character in the song because the vocals are processed in the beginning and the end. Mm it's a different voice in the story observing she's addicted to nicotine patches is it the omnipresent mother is it the spirit of the baby that's left her is it honestly i never really considered that that vocal processing was anything other than kind of a a sonic choice mm -hmm. but i could certainly see that i still for me personally think tori is the only character mm -hmm. but that if anything it's just like a shift on the timeline mm -hmm. like i could sort of see the processed vocal on the verses almost mimicking like illness mm. or like she's trapped underwater or layers mm -hmm. of something and then in the chorus where it's crystal clear that's the she in the story who's going to emerge triumphant on the other side of this who finds the spark i guess but the other one is still kind of in the thick of it i like that she's afraid of a light in the dark it takes a lot to pull yourself up out of the darkness and out of a hole or a pit of despair that even the light at the end of the tunnel is too much to bear sometimes. And I can see that she would be afraid of it. If she's in this pit of despair, trying to find a way out of it is too much. Maybe. Yeah. And she said at this point that she couldn't even find the will to go from the bed to the kitchen. Right. So to me here, she's very much in that moment. Right. 658, Taking back to what you just said about how like the vocal processing mimics kind of like a physical state of one character throughout the song. I think maybe even 658, are you sure where my spark is? If 658 is the moment that she lost the baby, then I can see that the vocal effects are 
supporting this kind of stasis, this kind of frozen in time moment in the hospital in that moment of looking at the clock in between the seconds changing. This whole thing exists in that mm-hmm. space before the second changes. Yeah, and it almost creates like a haze. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What Tory fan does not sort of smirk a little bit when you look at the clock and it says 6.58 or <laughs> get a receipt where the total right. is 6.58? You're like, oh. Or look at your bank account and realize you only have 6.58 left. <laughs> or that you're overdrawn by 6.58. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> More accurately. So interesting. We sort of talked about that quote and I sort of voiced that it never really occurred to me that the spark may be, at least in part, the spirit of the baby. What do we think that means here? Is that spirit kind of calling out to her, like here in the distance? Legitimately, it's never occurred to me that it might not be the spirit of the baby. So I'm curious to know what you always have thought the spark was. I've always interpreted it as one's will to go on. When you dig deep and you find that inner fortitude and your reason for living independent of any outside circumstances, like you always have to go internally and find it. You're never going to get it anywhere else from anyone else or from any other situation. I see that completely. I can understand that. I think there's a lot of that in there. But when I hear here, here, and here, I feel like it's floating away from her in the beginning, and maybe she gets it back at the end with the repetition, or it's here in the moment, and then when the seconds on the clock changes, it disappears at the end. Mm. Or do you think she finds her spark in the song? I think she finds it in, not to sound cheesy, in the sense that she never lost it. And I always picture, and maybe she's actually done it at some point, with every here, 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 but especially the final one kind of pointing at one's at her chest or her heart or her chest. Right, yeah. inside her soul, yeah. inside her being. Really, though? Yeah, she does that. She does grip her breasts. Mm-hmm. At certain Fill points. their mouths with some acid rain. Golly. She's <laughs> We've talked about this. She's talked about it as being a very clear line. So clear. And it is clear. She thinks she can do everything. The she being Tori, she thinks that she can do anything. She can hold back a glacier if she needed to. But the most basic human thing that she's been wanting to do for so long, remember, she's been even as early as 94 talking about, okay, I'm going to take some time off and have a baby. Wanting to do for so long, can't get it done. The most basic human womanly thing that there is. In this case, not to get too kind of graphic about it but don't you think there was an almost a physical sensation of trying to hold back a glacier in that moment where she says like maybe that quote we read where she's like on the way to the hospital like maybe it will be okay maybe i can just sort of oh yeah i, I never thought of that as in the actual moment she can hold back this thing mm-hmm. from flooding right i never read that into it wow what about the backing vocals here Backing vocals are between cotton balls and xylophones. I'm getting old. Getting old at 34 or whatever she was at the time. I mean, we all feel like that in our early 30s, early to mid 30s. That like, oh my God. Like, Is that what I have to look forward to? Kind of. I feel like, you know, as you get old, we have to 
confront the fact that it is not our world anymore, <laughs> that we are older, the yeah. older generation. But specifically in this narrative, as someone who wants to have a child, you know, as a woman, your time to do that is limited. Is limited. And you are post 30, you're considered a risky pregnancy, right? So mm-hmm. here she is past mm-hmm. that at this point. Mm-hmm. And for something that's so important to her that she's wanted to experience for a long time that it's slipping away, it's like, am I going to have another chance? Right. Again, it doesn't get more transparent than this. I'm getting old. What are the cotton balls and xylophones? I always took that as like what's going on medically. And then the xylophones are a representation to me of the pianos. Yeah. Or kind of the the music and the medical, as you were saying, really, um, I've always been able to do this. Like music has always been no problem. It came easily to me. But what I'm really wanting to accomplish, like this kind of basic biological function, right. I don't seem to be able to grasp for some reason. I think again, back to what you said this basic biological function that she can't accomplish for some reason, like the basic rhythm of life, like giving birth, living and dying, living and dying, giving birth. And she can't, Mm -hmm. is she even a woman, which has got to be like a very dark place to be. Especially if we consider the narrative of one's life, it's very compelling and sort of satisfying to think that after claiming her womanhood on boys for Pele, the next step of that would be to become a mother and that's where I go here, too, with like, oh, I thought I'd become a woman. and I finally reached this stage. Mm-hmm. And now I'm questioning that because what I sort of associated with that, at least at this point, is not coming to fruition. So am I really a woman after all? Or what does it mean if I'm a woman who can't create life or conceive? Yeah. that's when the voice becomes clear we get into the chorus and the filter drops off and it's just like her crystal clear voice and to me again that's the version of self here that is going to make her way through this experience one Mm. way or the other and not be defeated by this and to me you say you don't want it again and again is to say you could shy away from life you could sort of withdraw from life and not really live it and say yes to the experience of it which is you're going to get everything good and everything bad And there are certain moments where you can say, well, I just, I would rather do that. I would rather withdraw and just like be safe in the dark, maybe. But when it comes down to it, you don't really mean that. Right. Like if you want the good, you have to have the bad. Yeah. And you're not willing to give up the good because there will be bad. I agree with that. And also I like the idea that the filter does drop off and there's clarity there where it's like Tori's kind of looking at herself in the mirror, slapping her own face, like wake up, get up. Yeah. I love that. I think that's so true, actually. I just love that phrase, the circus we're in. I love this mess we're in. (laughs) I love everything, this blank we're in. Life is messy. I don't know. The circus we're in felt very like contemporary in that moment during this. Like, <laughs> uh, like it was a great lyric to me. I don't know why. Rally. Rally, I don't. Rally, I mean it. She goes a little Catherine Hepburn here. think she means by that other than come into my lair satan's children yeah this is a response to kind of people saying everything works out for the best right and like or god has a plan and you just don't know what it is and it's like great if this is the plan then i think i'm kind of done with it and maybe i'll give something else a shot i like that that's in response to those people i agree with if this is the plan then give me something else yeah i need a plan to the opposite the complete opposite plan exactly (laughs) 
There's even further lyrics buried deep in the song. Swing low, sweet chariot. Thoughts on that? That's funereal, saying goodbye to a spirit. And that's, you know, kind of a standard hymn. So that's kind of powerful. I imagine that song was sung a lot in her father's church and she's sort of offering it up in grief in this moment. Sort of as the spirit of this child is being whisked away to another plane or however she would phrase it. Did you see that picture of her when she's like a year, maybe two years before this album came out and she had, she's like holding herself and on her hand is written ice cream assassin in Sharpie. Like it's something that had just come to her when she was in on that day of taking that photo. I can find it, I'm sure. But Not sure. You've, I'm sure you've seen it. It's a very famous picture. And she's just holding herself and it says ice cream assassin on her hand. She's so cold. What do you think that she means? Like that line, trusting my soul to the ice cream assassin. Obviously she's talking about God. She's said it before. And let's go back to that Rolling Stone quote where she says, well, people have been praying to him, the ice cream assassin, for a very long time. And more wars have been fought in his name, the big guy. Think about it. You know what I mean? Ching. So what do you think she means? One who manages to kill or take away everything good. Or innocent or sweet. The yeah. sweet stuff of life. Yeah. You know what I've always said, David? The internet is a gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yes. If I've heard you say it once. Yes. I've heard you say it a thousand <laughs> times. <laughs> um, if you go to the dent, you can find early impressions of Spark the Single. And that's what we're here to revisit. We're here to revisit such gems as Eric Thalen saying, this has the potential to become a major hit. It will be played a lot on the radio and on music television. <laughs> they called it. It they... did get played a lot on the radio and on music television. And on music television. But one in particular, Kelly Stitzel, wrote to The Dent to say, Hi, Mike. Me again. I was just catching up on the latest Tory news and read a comment about my comment that Spark brought to mind a poem by Wallace Stevens called The Emperor of Ice Cream. The person said that she thought the emperor was God. The interpretations I've come to know of this poem is that the emperor is death. Now, I'm sure that doesn't make much sense to you, so here's the poem. Do you want me to read it to you, David? Yes, please. It's called The Emperor of Ice Cream by Wallace Stevens. Call the roller of big cigars, the muscular one, and bid him whip in the kitchen cups, concupiscent curds. Let the wenches dawdle in such dress as they are used to wear, and let the boys bring flowers in last month's newspapers. Let B be finale of seam. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. Take from the dresser of deal, lacking the three glass knobs, that sheet on which she embroidered fantails once, and spread it so as to cover her face. If her horny feet protrude, they come to show how cold she she is and dumb let the lamp affix its beam the only emperor is the emperor of ice cream then kelly goes on to say now i'm not at all saying this poem has anything to do with spark nor am i saying that tori is referring to this poem in the song when i listened to it and heard the line the poem just popped into my head probably because of the words ice cream when i read this poem i imagined tori putting some sort of music to it and singing it it just sounds like something she'd really be into you know i don't know maybe my literature freak brain is going a little overboard as a writer i know how annoying it it can be when people read too much into your work. So until Tori tells us what the song is about, I'm going to hang back in my interpretations. Mm. You think we're guilty of overthinking things or reading too much into an artist's work? No. Me either. What makes this here, here, here different from the others? I'm not sure that it is different yet. 
that's not different for me. There's no shift until the end. That's still like the seeking, I think. And then we get the chorus again. You say you don't want it again and again and again and again. Do you mean it yet? How many fates turn around in the what does that mean? Do you have an answer? What does it mean to you? I take it like fates are lives, like how many people's lives are getting destroyed in the overtime? How many fates turn around if the overtime is, even if the overtime is something literal? I'm with you and you know how sporty I am. So when I hear overtime, I can't help but think of an athletic game at some point. But really like, one's life as a game how quickly like you're saying how quickly things can change right uh, like on the turn of a dime or the blink of an eye right and you think something's going to go one way and before you know it it's completely different i like where you're going with the athletic reference like an, a game like a baseball game like everything is decided in the overtime if you go into overtime it's to decide your fate yeah and there will be a, like the only reason you're in overtime is because things are even and uh, one person will win and one person will lose in this overtime yeah or even a race, it's really that last lap that matters. Yeah. yeah. Mermaids? Yeah, and she's offered that to us, right? So there's not a lot of room for interpretation unless you just want to totally dismiss what Tori I herself do. had to say, which is valid. Mermaids and mermen. Mm -hmm. I kind of love this, especially because there's almost a resentment. Like you want to be or do something that someone else can do. And they make it look effortless, but at the same time, they seem to have kind of a hidden advantage mm -hmm. that you don't know about. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, I'm never going to be able to do that then. <laughs> this idea of synchronized swimming to ballerinas that are mermaids, like they have these secret powers too. Like they can dance on the water mm -hmm. in some weird way. There's mm -hmm. these people that have this just like invisible power. So we think at this point, she's equating that invisible power with bringing a child into the world. She sees other people who are able to do it. Why can't I? Mm-hmm. Young listeners of our podcast, Pele Baby, if you're still out there listening, somewhere in college now, back in the 90s, people would say, that was the bomb, or, oh, she's the bomb, or, I'm the bomb, or, you're the bomb, or, he's the bomb, or, it's, it's the, the bomb. bomb, and that meant good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's like, that's bad. That's it, bad. It really meant good. That's good. Do we think this meant anything other than her using it in that way? Like She wanted to be cool. She wanted to I be know. street. This is the one piece in the song I think that ages the song. The verbal bomb. But I still think it's the bomb. It's weird though, because we have this shifting voice or, you know, perspective of she, me. It's like, who's calling who the bomb here and who's who's agreeing? I think she's agreeing with the baby. I, th I mean, I think she's telling the baby, you thought that you were the bomb. Yeah, well, so did I. Like kind of going back to, you wanted to, uh, you wanted another mommy? Well, I hope she's tone deaf because you could have had it all. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like it's kind of that. I always see that as her talking to the spark. Okay. Or the entity. You thought that you were the bomb. Yeah, well, so did I. Then Tori singing to her, say you don't want it, say you don't want it, say you don't. That's why it gets a little bit more intense there, because you don't really mean it either. That's possible. We've also kind of set up this dialogue between two warring sides of self, let's say, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. the one that's come out the other side. So that could still be happening here. Mm -hmm. Like we both, <laughs> we both thought we were the bomb. Right. We were both wrong in right. this instance. That to me is another way of saying 
she, you know, kind of came through, let's say, the Boys for Pele experience, and she was like almost at the height of her popularity as a musician, and there was kind of nothing she couldn't do. And then this next step is where I've failed, so to speak, or not been able to... This is the the first time in a long time I've not been able to do something, which has become a mother. Personally, for me, it fits into my head that she's singing to this entity. Can you imagine calling your baby the bomb? Look at my baby, it's the bomb. <laughs> you, do you think you're too good for this womb? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clean your womb. <laughs> she's addicted to nicotine patches. She's afraid of a light in the I think this is why I think that this is a moment in between the second changing is because you've got the exact same processing and you feel like all of this has taken place in the span of just like a brief blink of an eye. And to me, you know, she's talked about Pandora being the song that came forward as an invitation to kind of dive deep and you're going to have to move through this. Mm -hmm. And I get that for sure. But to me, that moment is happening here at the tail end. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is such a perfect track one. Mm -hmm. But that to me is almost the jumping off or the saying yes to this invitation to dive deep here at the end. Like she's still afraid of that light in the dark, but she's going to find the spark. So you think she found it at the end? No, she's going to find it. Yes, going to find it. Going on a journey into the underworld to find the spark. Thank you. Great. Yes. Here we go again. I know. Well, that's a good song. (laughs) Want to listen to Yanta? Yes. You found the right sample, I think. I know, it's impressive. It's pretty close, right? Yeah. What I like about that little intro, it's a little messier than I realized, you know, just like the playing. It's not just like so straightforward it's kind of there's a little bit of improv it feels or like grace notes like you say and aside from a hint there there's like no presence of the vocal melody this is all sort of roiling underneath it but it's not following what she's singing at all of what Tori has said about sort of building sonic structures and sonic architecture and so she'll sometimes say you know then you turn a corner and you walk into the bathroom or maybe the chorus is like a bath of warm water that's actually what this sounds like to me like the first part of the song is actually kind of dirty sounding and then we get this kind of crystal clear soaring chorus that's like um, bathing in fresh water almost compared to the rest anyway This was one take 
The way she talks about Cotolite's knees, do you think she was like swiveling back and forth between piano and keyboard or maybe one hand poised, ready to go? Because that's there's not really any time between the verse and the chorus when it goes to piano. Well, I believe she pulled it off in one take, yeah. I think it took a lot of practice, maybe. And maybe there's some like bolstering in the studio. Bolstering meaning like they maybe snipped out the pause between. But I feel like the playing itself is one take. lot of room for percussion I hear a lot of room for the boys in there you know she's not she's playing a melody but she's not playing like she's not filling in as much space as she could That's one that I'll definitely take with me to the karaoke bar. Mm. I think Yanta's very talented. <laughs> I think it's safe that's to my say. Cons- that's my consensus. <laughs> what is your favorite lyrical moment? Say you don't want it, the circus we're in, but you don't really mean it. How about you? I think my favorite lyrical moment of the entire song is between cotton balls and xylophones, I'm getting old. Mm. I just think that says it all. There's a lot of desperation. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of pleading just in that line between cotton balls and xylophones. I'm getting old and the way she sings it and the way she vocalizes it. It's the heart of the song. What did you think about the music as presented by a musician like Yanta? I love music when presented by musicians, Hmm. personally. What about you? There's a lot of music in your music. Do you think that's good for music? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a stupid interviewer. We actually have an instrumental version of Spark, an official version, but not without the percussion and everything. I actually think this version of it with just the keyboard, there's an eeriness about it Mm -hmm. that isn't Mm -hmm. present in the studio version, Mm -hmm. for sure. There's also a lot more space is one thing I noted. There's a moment even where they drop out and I could in my mind hear the drums and the bass filling that in. I'm like, oh, she left room for everybody to kind of have a conversation. It's not just Tori going all the way down the octave to keep the rhythm anymore. What's your favorite musical moment? I think my favorite musical moment would be the intro where it's a little messier than I expected and a little more free form than I expected and it doesn't follow the vocal line. And I just like that sample she chose. What about I think you? She played with a bunch to find the right one. Oh yeah. I know. Sure, I'd be cause... like I'd like to hear the demo or, or the track of Let's her just playing around. Yeah. Ukulele. See you don't want it again and again, but you don't you don't really mean 
My favorite musical moment is the bridge for sure, when it just explodes in that Say You Don't Want It. This song, the whole song, but particularly that portion, is creation of the studio, in my opinion, and it's never quite captured that same energy live. When you ask this question, I answer after having heard Yanta. So my favorite musical moment of Yanta's is the opening, but my favorite musical moment of Tori's in the song is mm. the bridge as well. That's very slippery of you. Because I was thinking, like, my favorite musical moment of just hearing him do it was like, oh, I was surprised by this moment. And I really like that. But like, come on, thinking about the whole song, it's the bridge. Ballerinas that you'll never find. Oh my God, is this the new Inanna where you throw yeah. your, your arm over your head for this whole era? I yeah. love it. Let's decide that no, now. No, Inanna is dead. No, I know, but this is the new version. So can I do that too? Can I have like a Russian nesting doll of favorite musical moments? <laughs> yeah. It's the same it. regardless of Yanta or Tori, but like big picture, the bridge for sure. But specifically, and this is probably going to sound silly, there's like a line of the piano under the first ballerinas that have fins that you'll never find, which is very pleasing to me. And it's kind of jaunty and it bounces around. It's like, I wish we could hear I wish I could hear it better, but there's something about it that's pleasing to me the way it sort of intertwines around the vocal melody. What's your favorite vocal moment? That say you don't want it. That part in the yeah. bridge? I think my favorite vocal performance or vocal moment is anytime she says rally. rally. Don't rally mean it. Rally. I like that part a lot. When you refer to Choir Girl casually, how do you refer to it? You call it Choir Girl, right? Choir Girl, yeah. I call it Fetch. No, you don't. F-T-C-H. You don't either. F-T-C-H. <laughs> Fetch. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's fun to stay at the F-T-C-H. It's fun to stay at the the real place for gays. You can get down with all the girls. You, you can. It's the real safe haven for gay young men. Sisters, there's no need to feel down. We've got margaritas. Spark by the pool. No, I do call it fetch. Frozen or rocks. Quit trying to make fetch happen. Fetch. (laughs) Shall we wind down with Paul Roy? I could use some after this. Okay, let's wind down. Hi, Paul Roy. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. How's it going? (laughs) What's up? You ready to wind down? I'm already winding down. Yeah. (laughs) We are drinking a bottle of Apothic Crush. You know, I love the Apothic family of wines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is your thing. You yeah, brought that many times. Paul Roy, tell us where you were when Tori Amos dropped her first album with the band. Well, I remember the first time I heard a song from From the Choir Girl Hotel. Was it Spark? Yes, it was Spark. And it was Letterman just happened to be on. I didn't even know. This was back in the day, right? When you didn't know everything like you do now. Yeah. So um, I had no idea she was coming out with an album and just happened to pop on. And it was mind blowing because this was a huge transition for her so not knowing anything about that transition it was interesting did it take you a second to recognize her no <laughs> her hair was like a few shades lighter she had crazy like bejeweled eye makeup on Be like who is that oh my yeah. god i could spot her through the subterfuge that's not a problem <laughs> what did you think of that letterman performance and did it rock your world yeah i mean the piano playing was really different and who would have expected her to go with a band not me so that was pretty interesting what did you think about the studio version since you heard the live version first? Um, I liked it a little bit better because l- l- the talk shows, they are notoriously bad for acoustics. Like, Yeah, they mix terribly. Like the mix is really weird in a lot of those. And Why they're is playing that? with like some lame house band that usually doesn't even know the song. I mean, mm. she had her people, but... Could you imagine her playing this with Paul Schaefer? <laughs> you <laughs> thought that you were the bomb. <laughs> I don't know why she would change her style of singing. <laughs> it just makes sense when you're playing with Paul Schaefer. 
So tell us about now, you now and your relationship with Choir Girl. What is your relationship with that album? And as a piano player, your thoughts on her playing in the album? I think it's her best example of integration between acoustic and sort of digital and usage of the band. I think it's some of the best examples of how, like what she can do when mixed with the band. Because think about like Hotel Mm. or Liquid Diamonds or Raspberry Swirl, which actually is quite complicated. She's never really replicated that sort of playing if she's been playing with the band. So, mm. How much of the success of Choir Girl do you think has to do with performance and songwriting as opposed to production in terms of how she integrated the piano with the band so well? The production is pretty masterful, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you ever play Spark, you as a piano player? Yeah, but it's kind of rare that I play that one. How come? The bridge is, mm, I gotta be in the mood for it. Mm. I don't know it super well, so I have to be in the mood to struggle with something. And When you play Paul Roy, when you because you have an intricate setup in your home for playing, do you play the keyboard on the verses and then at the bridge turn to a piano? Yeah, I've done that sometimes, but more often I do like the two-handy thing that she does. Ooh. Yeah. Oh. Concertina. Ooh. Have you ever listened to the words of Spark, Paul Roy? I have listened to the words. What do you think of the Spark lyrics? I almost saw sarcastic air quotes around words. words. <laughs> you said it just the words, if that's what you can call them. This is one of those songs where she's a little more clear in the context of mm. what she's talking about, I think. But for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what the words are. I know 658 is in there. Okay, um, let's do like complete this sentence. Let's okay. give him some lines Ooh, of lyrics okay. and then see if he can give well, us the I next part. Well, I might because you're providing me with stimulus, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> oh. No, we're not. <laughs> Paul Roy. Take from this what you will. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll give you a fill in the blank question. Are you okay. ready? Yeah. She's convinced she can hold back a blank her glazes senses not glazes <laughs> what? senses her glazes senses <laughs> she's convinced she can hold back her senses glaciers a, gl- a glacier it's yes glacier? just just the okay. one just it's, the one glacier it's big though okay. she's convinced she can um, hold back a glacier okay but she couldn't keep blank blank baby alive yeah mm, yeah okay. trusting my what to the what soul to, to the that. Inferno something? No. <laughs> do you like Tori Amos? I don't hear these. They go in I my... hear the notes. Yeah, I hear I the notes. I hear the melody. I hear the sonic structure. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Roy has a wonderful website out there. It's called figuretoryout.com. Do you want to talk a little bit about this new addition to the Tory community? Yes. You know, if you've heard me on past episodes, I try to remain invisible online. I have nothing to promote ever. And this is really weird for me because I now have something to promote. He's plugging. It. It's not a vanity project. It's purely um, <laughs> it's for the it's community. for the community. There are so. a lot of pictures of you on it, though, which is weird. <laughs> There's that you have to have the password. But um, <laughs> so, little known fact: I was the moderator for Figure It Out, which was a Yahoo group. They closed, and it had 20 years of transcriptions wow. on it. Some of them are note for note perfect. Some of them are drafts, like you know. Fair. But the Yahoo groups, I don't know if you know this, totally closed. They deleted all the data. So. I was kind of just going to let it die. And then two days before the the deadline to like download everything, I was like, I can't let 20 years of history just evaporate. So I spent a good chunk of time converting like middies to PDFs, which if you have to do 250 of them, it's not fun. So (laughs) you can imagine that. But yeah, so figuretoryout.com is the repository. repository of figure it out. And 
there's some real gems on there. So part of putting this together was really fun because I forgot some things were on there. Mm. So there's some real gems like the meters sessions from 96. Oh, wow. Precious Things 98, wow. the live versions, like Total Eclipse from the Heart, some interesting covers. So if you at all play piano or know somebody who does, it's worth checking out. Go to figuratoryout.com where Paul Roy has invested his time. It is a free website, but you do have to sign up to be a member in order to get all of the transcriptions. That's because I don't want Google to index transcribers' work. Yeah. So the figure it out files were behind password protection. And so he's protecting yeah. the transcribers. Yeah. If anybody wants to contribute, any transcribers out there, like share your work, right? Share your work. All the transcribers who have been part of the group for 20 years, huge thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, follow Paul Roy at figuratoryout.com. Join as a member and you get a complete access to all the transcriptions, over 20 years of transcriptions, over, over 250 songs, yeah. including live covers, including rarities, B-sides, things you would not believe. Mm -hmm. Abbey Road transcriptions up there, ring my bells up there. I just put up a Nightingale sang in Berkeley my Square. God. Not a fun, I don't like that song, but it's a good representation of just how diverse her playing is because yeah. it, it's like pink and glitter. Like, what the, oh. what the hell is that? Like, yeah. that kind of playing. Ooh, is pink and glitter on there? It is on there, yeah. Ooh, okay. Have a good night, Paul Roy. We'll see you again for Cruel, maybe. Ooh, mm. fun. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. And now, here is a cover of Spark by Just Jane. And I found it on YouTube, and I'm going to link to it on our website, songsoftrayments.com. Just check out our show notes, and it's there. She's addicted to nicotine patches. She's addicted to nicotine patches. She's afraid of the light in the dark. 6.58, are you sure when my spark is here? on the line with us right at this very moment we have james farron but i know him by his familiar name jimmy farron who is a spark super fan and a friend hi jimmy how are you hey boy so jimmy tell us all about your tori amos fandom how did you discover tori when so it's kind of like a two-part discovery the very first part which was kind of blocked from my entire brain until a few years ago was in middle school, I had this really bizarre social studies teacher who also taught sex ed and he made everything like super sexual, but he wanted to play a song. And this was also, keep in mind, when Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana and the whole grunge scene, at least in the Midwest, was happening. I was not into the grunge scene at all. I was really into like Lil' Kim. Um, but he played the song. And again, not being a fan of that music, I wasn't sure what it was. But four or five years ago, I realized he played Smells Like Teen Spirit by Tori. He wanted to see if any of the kids in the class who were fans of Nirvana knew the song totally stripped down and 
played in a different way. And a lot of people didn't. So that was, I'd say, my first introduction to her. But the thing that really cemented Tori for me was my great friend, Heather. She was driving me home from school in 2000. I was a junior at that time in high school. She was listening to the song and the line, she's addicted to nicotine patches came on. I'm like, what the hell are we even listening to? And she's just like, oh my gosh, you just have to keep listening. She is like the ultimate. She is everything. And so from that, she would play this two of Savinas and Back for me. And I really fell in love with this live music. It was just something completely different than all this rap music I was listening to at the time, because I grew up with old country. My very first cassette tape was Dolly Parton, White Limousine. So I think maybe that's why I connected so much with Tori and her brutal honesty that was in these songs and a complete 180 from what these rap artists were singing about at the time. Tori had to work hard on you. You were like, teen spirit, no thank Lord. you. How did you go from what the hell am I even listening to, to this is amazing? <laughs> I don't know. She would just always play it in the car when we would go places. It was kind of weird. I kind of worked my way backwards. I started with Venus and then went to Choir Girl and Voice Bele and so on. So I can never, when you guys talk about where were you at or what was your first time you've listened to this song? And I was just like, oh my gosh, like all of my first times of listening to those songs were literally at the same time. Like I couldn't absorb those songs fast enough to where I'm like, I don't know. I think it all happened so quickly. With Spark, there's such a sadness going through the darkness to find a little bit of light that it, that is left in your world. And seeing that darkness take over, it's just so interesting to me. And in my mind, I have always thought of this as like a branch of that vampire album because just like a vampire they suck the life from you and you end up being a shell of yourself and to me with this darkness that's overwhelming her in the song you're just trying to find a glimpse or a spark of light you're searching for it, you're reaching for it and it's that darkness just makes you less than what you were in the beginning of yourself as a whole so and it's up to her to find that spark and to find that balance between the light and the dark have you ever requested this song live? I haven't, but the first time I did get to hear it was during the Doll Posse tour when you could buy those VIP tickets. And I got to see her do the Spark as a sound check during the sound check song. So I got to see Spark during that time and in Omaha, Nebraska. But the song I would always request is Drive All Night. I requested <laughs> that song from... 2007 all the way up until 2014 <laughs> and you've gotten it uh, finally but sadly i wasn't at that show but oh no thank god for bootleg. <laughs> i know I've, i only got to see the kansas city show from dolly to lil kim to tori amos we have jimmy farron thank you so much for sharing your love of spark with us on today's show you can follow james jimmy farron on twitter at jk farron and please do so thank you so much for being on our show and we'll talk to you obviously we'll talk to you again yes you will see you on tour thank bye you boys. see ya bye it just it seems like this was an, a, an intense amount of, of physicalness for you and your video i mean this is sort of new Tell us about, was this grueling to shoot? Sort well, of let's it. put it this way. Um, I really had no idea that I was going to be crawling through a river on my knees in England in the cold. But um, I started to get in, into the story, and I really believed that this girl, it was about striving, and it was about, she wanted to... Um, she wanted to live so desperately 
that she would do anything to uh, to do that. So now, as it starts, was she kidnapped? I mean, the video just kind of well, starts you, right you, out. Just... All you know is this car crash saved her life. Uh -huh. So the idea is some things that are really horrible. Yeah, they, they are horrible. But then you move on, and then maybe, wow, she was uh, in the back of this trunk. The car crashed. Her life is saved because of what you think is a horrible thing normally, a car right. crash. And then she starts to find a will in herself to strive, you know, to stay alive. And she starts believing in her ability um, to get through. Have you ever seen this music video, David? Spark, performed by Tori Amos, directed by James Brown. I've heard tell of it. <laughs> this is from Tori Stories, which is her take on the videos that came out with the complete video collection VHS. This is what she says about the video. A parallel, obviously. People have said to me that they found this video disturbing. I guess facing death is just that. I didn't want a play-by-play -play on film of the literal meaning of spark, so I would spend hours talking to James Brown, the director, about circumstances out of your control and having to find this will in yourself that you didn't know you had. I've said before that Spark is about a girl having a really bad day. Angels. I knew I wanted them represented in some way. Someone had said to me after the miscarriage, well, at least the angels were with you. No, I said. They went to a rave. And why not? When the wolf is at your door, there is no insurance, no distracting him, her. No angel can or has the power to break universal law. Not with this wolf on my door. Tori really has a problem with angels. She takes Why? them to task. Where are those angels when you need them and crucify? Oh. Now where are they? Hmm, they're driving away in their Yugo. The problem is with the idea that people insert angels everywhere. It's like that Ani DeFranco song, at least the angels were with you. Shut up. Tell that to a shelter dog. You want to finish the rest of this, Tori Stories? Water. The rhythm of the water in the tropics where I wrote Choir Girl was the element that brought me strength to my woman, who was truly in no man's land after losing the baby. So James said to me that water had to be the turning point, the pivot where my character transforms. The ominous pulse of the video was no different than the feeling I had the day Spark is based on, death lurking. People have asked me what happened to the girl in the Spark video. Well, the children of the corn, as I call them, or the angels, as James fondly calls them, village of the damned, arrive in their buggy and Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan do not come to mind. And you figure maybe she's better off not getting, going, whatevering with them anyway. And they say, but what about him? He's still out there. And I say, yes. I know. It's interesting, the idea of, like, I'm stuck in hell and there's someone chasing me. Still, I'd rather, like, I'm not getting in that car. Yeah, I'm going to take my chances on my own. Yeah. How horrifying to be, like, trapped in the woods and then you finally make it to a street and those two are the ones you confront. Mm. This is from the Chicago Tribune, May 17th, 1998. With the video, Spark, the album's first single, the woman is blindfolded with her hands tied and she escapes. She doesn't know where she's going, but she's having to pull on something within her that maybe she didn't know she had and with these different events that happen to us we either treat it as a rite of passage and get through it or we don't make it through it can't be like it'll be okay because sometimes it isn't there aren't these little boxes of happy life and horrible life do you remember that this video was on pop-up videos yes and then we found out that the woman hobbling through the forest was it's a not body her. double yeah <laughs> i've never been able to unsee it ever since then it's like something i know about this video um i wonder what happened to the body double i hope she went on to have an illustrious career 
I think, yeah, that crane shot mm-hmm. kind of zooming down as she's mm-hmm. running, I think is pretty powerful. She had a budget for this mm-hmm. video. This is her mm-hmm. most impressive video to me, even though... Budgetary-wise? Yeah, there's yeah. like not much of a cast, just mm-hmm. in terms of production value and the scope of it and how yeah. polished it looks. Yeah. Um, it's really great. And it tells a story and, you know, tone-wise, imagery-wise, it's kind of up my alley with how dark and like Twin Peaksy it is or whatever with this fingerless man on the hunt for her. And you see her fangs. She pays tribute to her own fangs. Fangs. You. Does you know? she? Yeah, when they're pulling away from her, like it starts on her mouth, and like it's very clear she's got vampire teeth. Mm-mm. It's never been more clear. Hmm. I seem to remember a quote where she's talking about the Spark video, where she mentions that the first pitch or concept that James Brown brought to her was something totally different, and she yeah. was like, "James, no, 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 take me to the water." How much of this vision of the song did you relate to the director to make this visual match? your lyrics well the truth is i love this director so much james brown from the apollo 440 video which i know these guys know right apollo 440 and um he turned in a treatment to me that i just said i love you but this treatment is so not the spirit of this piece and i said take me to the water this woman is is you know you don't know sometimes where you're gonna go from one minute to the next i mean life is that precious and i think people forget we don't know where we're going to be in an hour from now. Take me to the so, river. I don't know what that means, if it was more literal. Kind of like she's saying, I didn't want it to be like a play-by-play of what happened that day or what. But Well, should we ask James himself? Yeah, we should. All right, everybody. We are on the line with director James Brown. You know him from directing one of our favorite videos, Spark. But he's also worked with Apollo 440, Spice Girls, Michael Fassbender, just to name a few. Hi, James. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks a lot. Can you start with telling our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to video directing and and film directing as well? Yeah, my name's James Brown. I always wanted to be a filmmaker and I was traveling the world for about four years when I was younger. And it seemed like a bit of an impossible dream to me um, growing up in Wales in a, in a little town, you know. But I had a friend in a band called Swerve Driver. That sort of helped me a little bit. But I was working as an editor. So I was sort of moonlighting, doing a bit of directing and come in at the weekend and use the, the facilities for free because, you know, nothing was easy in those days. Obviously, everything was film and uh, you couldn't really do it yourself in your in your bedroom. Right. Um, so I just, you know know started doing really low budget videos and honestly I spent about a year unemployed after I um I left my editing job after I did my first couple of little videos and then um just kept the faith really just kept persevering hassling record companies for for scraps and uh (laughs) finally got a scrap and they liked the scrap and they gave me another scrap and that was Apollo 440 and they they liked it and they kept me employed for about a year and um, just doing videos for Sony as it was then. You know, one of these videos caught the eye of Tori and um, and next thing I knew I was talking to her on the phone and things just kind of snowballed really. You know, we got sent the song by the record company and uh, I just really liked the song and it really spoke to me. And I sort of delved into the the depths of my soul and uh, tried to put some stuff down on paper and thought, well, I'll never hear anything about that again because that's just madness. But then the phone did ring and it was her. And she said, I really like where you're going with it. Um, Do you want to talk about it? 
I said I'd love to. So um, then she explained to me what it what it was about, uh, which I just sort of responded to instinctively, really, I think, without really knowing exactly what it was about, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, we, we gelled well on the on the phone and she just really liked the way that I was going with it. And she explained a few things to me and then things made more sense and grew from there. But on, the music so strong, it's peace too, doesn't it? Right, it's right. hard. If you've got a soul, it's hard not to feel right. when you hear that song. <laughs> We met up for dinner in a little Italian restaurant in London and she was living over here at the time. And um, actually she was living not that far away from where I was living in uh, Wales. And we um, decided to shoot it in a little quiet valley in um, Wales. That was how that came about. So I want to take you back to the pitch process for Spark. She, Tori's mentioned, first of all, Tori's mentioned being very fond of the video. And she mentioned that there was an original treatment for the song, that you had gone back to the drawing board. She had talked to you about the song being about loss. Um, Do you recall anything from your original direction that you were going? I don't, to be honest. That's not quite how I remember it, really. I remember always sort of going down that sort of road, actually, but um, she's probably right. (laughs) (laughs) As far as, like, when you're looking at the video as the director, how fully fleshed out in your mind as a creative, how fully fleshed out is the narrative of the video? For example, do you have an idea of what led the character that she's playing, what led her to this moment in her life, what the backstory is, kind of like an actor builds a backstory, or are you simply just sort of relegated to what we see in the video well i had a pretty strong backstory in this case i mean my backstory was just purely the um like i say i didn't quite understand know what the song was about i just got the emotions of it you know really so um Mm. so i'd say that first i just responded to the sound and then to individual lines in the song. But what I could really feel was the angst and and the kind of suffering um, and the sort of sense of powerlessness. And that was really what my the backstory was in, in my mind was that it was about this, um, it's all kind of quite metaphorical, but the literal story behind it is that, in my mind anyway, was that she had been um, captured, abducted, basically, and stuck in the boot of a car. It's a trunk, trunk to you. <laughs> but that um, things had gone wrong and this, this car had um, crashed along the way and uh, she'd got a chance at escape. So obviously we joined the story halfway through, you know. Um, but that's the kind of literal backstory. But then when she started telling me that it was about a miscarriage and things, well, then it all started to kind of make sense on a on a different level as well, really. And then I started to sort of fill in the gaps based on that, you know. To me, it was like a sort of feeling of, well, there's a nihilistic quality to it, obviously, you know, but I think it's helplessness really was the thing that I was was the sort of through line, if you like. Ultimately, we're all on our own. And I feel like that's what it's like going through a trauma in a way. No one can help you, even though they may want to or may not want to. Ultimately, you're on your own and you have to deal with things yourself, you know. I got a strong sense from her that she was dealing with things in her own life, in in her own soul, and that there was a certain kind of feeling of helplessness from that. And just sort of built the metaphors on 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 top of that idea really 
I mean, the video is so beautiful. It's full of symbolism. You have the twins. You have the man missing part of his finger. You have, of course, Skeeter carved into the tree. Yeah. These are all these beautiful, beautiful moments and just metaphors and symbols in this video. Is there anything that you focused on that we might not realize as a nugget of some kind for yourself? Or what is maybe your favorite bit from the video, your favorite moment? Say my favorite bit would probably be just the fact that even when she struggled through everything and she's managed to escape and she's managed to get free and come out of the forest to the road which is kind of like hope really and you know the road forward no one will help her and that she's left there on her own to deal with it and to me that my favorite moment is the is, is the last second is the little drop of blood the that blood just on the leaf. drops onto her because to me that's i it just it just expressed it really yeah you know the fact that she'd been through so much and yet she's still still bleeding really mm-hmm. and of course when it uh and she's such a great artist i don't I know i've never felt so so close to an artist in my life so so there's that you know yeah and everything um is just so kind of from the heart that it's just i mean it's just an honor to work with someone like that really but also just you know you you feel it in the way that they perform and the way that they the way she sort of threw herself into it really i mean i think her record company thought we were a bit mad (laughs) (laughs) but she had very strong creative control in her contract so she just told them look leave me alone we're doing it this way you know Mm -hmm. um and she very much, because it, it was very cold in Wales when we were filming, but she really kind of put her heart and soul into it, you know, and she suffered. And she, I mean, she's a true artist, really. I don't know. You know, she was just really suffered for her art, but also for her life, really, for what had happened to her. She felt terrible and she wanted it. Making the video was as much of a cathartic experience for her, I believe, as anything, you know. Right. To give you an idea, we had a, a very tough lady who was the stunt double, and we were filming, obviously, in winter, going through rivers in um, in Wales pretty darn cold. Well, the stunt double got hypothermia and had to be whisked off to hospital. So Tori took over doing all the stunts herself. Wow. You can imagine what the record company were, were obviously trying to say, no, you can't do that. And she was saying, I must do this. And um, she, uh, she, I just, she was amazing. I want to talk a little bit about that because she's quoted as saying, actually, she went on, on telly and she said, There was a body double on set who was supposed to go into the river. But she, um, hyperventilated. <laughs> she was so sweet. She's this amazing athlete, but she wouldn't That's go That's what in. she was there for, right? Yeah. But, you know, she's a wonderful person. And so it was like, okay, somebody's got to do it. And we're the only two people with red hair. So it's my turn. And how did you guys make that decision? She was any person with red hair. And <laughs> she had to do it. <laughs> I don't think it was, it didn't feel like it was ever in doubt, you know, it was just like, I think she wanted to do it. I mean, she was already sort of very cold and she was already going through a lot, but she was more than happy to do it, to be honest. That well, that was how I felt anyway. Um, she was such a trooper. My cameraman and I were both completely in love with her by the end of the shoot. <laughs> 
It's just like quite a woman, really. I mean, she was pretty incredible. But yeah, she just um, she just took it on and just did it. And what gave the stunt double hypothermia? Tori didn't seem to feel the pain. She just carried on, you know. And and then we still had a third of the video to make or something, you know. And she, all the stuff on the road and various other shots, and didn't seem to slow her down for a second. Yeah, she was pretty amazing. James, this video is so haunting, and I'm so glad that you chose the twins as sort of your favorite bit because that is like that that moment haunts all of us 20 years later. But looking yeah. back 22 years, can you believe it's been that long? Um, no. <laughs> no. What sticks out to you in the video? Is there anything that you would change? I mean, it seems to be a really magical experience, and it seems to have been just just kind of a moment for everybody that just was magic it just it really worked it's beautifully shot the styling is beautiful greg copeland's work with the camera is beautiful i mean it just seemed to really work but is there anything that you as a director when you look at it you would change not really honestly you know it was um a very sort of um carefully put together video i mean it, you know sometimes you make videos and you all will do 14 takes of the chorus and we'll do this and we'll slap it together and it'll be a video. But this was not like that. Every frame was preconceived and shot once or twice because it's on film and we don't, you know, we didn't have a whole load of film. So we just set it up and rehearse it a little bit and then we'd shoot it and then we'd move on to the next frame. So um, it's not much that I'd changed because it was all supposed to be there, you know. How many shooting days did you have? One, as I remember. One. I may be wrong, but I think it's one. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't a whole lot. Another reason why we weren't shooting a whole lot of takes and everything was very um, buttoned down, you know? Yeah. What's next for you, James? What are you working on currently? Um, been just been making a commercial, which is like a sort of comedy, but it's also a sort of action piece. Um, I was um, shooting up in Scotland, actually, and I was thinking, ironically, I was thinking of this video and um, channeling my inner Tory because uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was having a hard time of it myself. Got to get through the cold. Um, Got to get through the cold. I fainted. Um, no. At, yeah, I was lying on the ground with the uh, the little monitor sort of beside me on the ground, <laughs> directing <laughs> from the floor because <laughs> I couldn't get up. So uh, yeah. Very much channeling my inner Tory. What would Tory have done? She would have got up, I think. I, I right. couldn't get up. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> well, we so very much thank you for talking to us through your flu. I'm sorry to hear that happened. <laughs> thank you. Um, and we'll talk to you again for your Jackie's Strength video, yes? Okay, sir. Thank Great. you very much. Thank you very much. That was another small part from a longer interview. You can find that interview in its entirety on our Patreon-only Drive All Night Plus feed at patreon.com slash songsoftoryamos. This is Nick Brady covering Spark. We found it on YouTube, and we'll link to it in our show notes, songsoftoryamos.com, and we'll be right back with our live section. She's addicted to nicotine patches. Addicted to nicotine patches. She's afraid of the light in the dark. 658, are you sure where my spark is? She's convinced she can hold back the glacier, but she couldn't keep baby alive. Doubting if there's woman in this somewhere. Say you don't want it again and again But you 
Adjusting my soda ice cream assassin. We've made it to the live section, David. Our first live section of this new era. Of course, this was a single, so there's a lot of promo appearances where she plays this. What was the very first time you saw her play it live? Letterman, Letterman. for sure. Heck yeah. I never trusted her, I guess. Every time she did something different, I was like, ah, what's it going to be like? Seeing her with the band live. I've heard it in studio. Now we're going to see a live performance on Letterman. So yeah. you're saying you weren't expecting it to be good? No, not that I wasn't expecting it to be good. I was just nervous about it. Not from the standpoint of like whether or not her performance was going to be good, I guess, but whether or not I was going to like, like it, it since it, I knew yeah. that she was touring with the band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... I was super excited. I caught Letterman on the day that it aired. So April 10th, 1998, you know what I was doing Mm -hmm. that night. Mountain Standard Time at 11 p.m. I caught Letterman by accident, but I knew Leno was coming. So there was those two, the late night with Letterman and the Tonight Show with Jay Leno as the big ones that I saw. Yeah. I think that's all that I saw prior to the album release, if I'm not mistaken. Which should you prefer? Leno, for sure. Leno? Yes. You prefer Leno? Yeah, I Why? think Letterman was pretty rough. Letterman honestly. was really rough. Leno, she seemed very nervous in the interview on oh, Leno. And that's I will, the moment you talk about when she drops the card. I, and... I, yeah, and it rocked me to my core because there I was, a young, not confident gay teen, watching this beautiful, elegant, poised woman wearing this weird sparkles on her eyes, but totally confident, wearing this weird-ass dress. With her maroon eyebrows. Yeah, and the dress being all asymmetrical, it was like a flame, it was like a pink flame, right? Or the way it was cut, reminded me of the rain dress, how it's like kind of slashed there too. Yeah. So I'm like, she's wearing these bold fashion forward choices she's completely poised and confident and then she sits down in the interview and like her hands are shaking she reveals that she's a little nervous and it rocked me to my core that 
Tori was a human being that also got nervous. Because she's always, up until that point, been so, like, cheeky. She seems very comfortable in interviews, you know? What do you think changed? Because you're absolutely right. This era is the first time I ever remember seeing her nervous, whether it be on TV or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Like, she's been performing in front of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. She's performed hundreds of shows Mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. She'd been on TV many times, and she always seemed in complete and total control. Whether Mm -hmm. or not she was, Mm -hmm. like her, you know, she didn't indicate otherwise. And she became nervous at this point. I don't know if there was, like, more pressure because she had become more commercially successful or if it was just having the band and she felt like she had less control or what it was, but I feel like she never quite came back from it. And ever since, every single time she's been on television, I feel like she's nervous about it. I definitely agree that there was a shift here with these performances in particular, right? Like she was so comfortable at the Rain show. That was the last time we saw her performing live in front of a camera, I think, right? Yeah. And then here she is visibly nervous. I don't know what changed except for maybe the band. I don't think it has anything to do with control, but maybe acceptance. Like, will people accept this? Me playing like this? Maybe she felt a little like being on TV like this. Maybe she felt a little like a fraud with the band or didn't want to be seen as a fraud. I don't know what changed. What are your thoughts? I also feel like she became specifically self-conscious about the way she looked in a way that she hadn't. What do you mean because of the... During the Pele era, she was kind of looser Mm -hmm. and she would wear... She was still in the phase of where she'd wear like a sweater and jeans or a t-shirt and jeans, whatever, and didn't really care. But at this point, she maybe was pressured or was pressuring herself to be like a little more glam Mm -hmm. and kind of styled. Mm -hmm. So maybe she was, you know, just more self-conscious about the way she looked on camera in a way that she hadn't been up until that point. And then you sort of throw in the added pressure of playing with the band and it was just kind of a lot to handle. She specifically mentions, and we're going to read this, she's being interviewed about the Letterman performance and she mentions holding her head a certain way. Yeah, let's read it right now. Yeah. All right. This is from the New York Times on April 23rd, 1998. Tori Amos takes pains with her image. As she rehearsed for her appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman a few weeks ago, she had her keyboard and piano move to improve the camera angle, then pondered just how high her microphone should be tilted. After she raised it and noted the exact level for the stage crew, a bystander asked whether lifting her head improved her vocals. It's never about the music, she said with a laugh. It's about the chin. (laughs) Hey, I get it. There's a little bit of a weight gain here in between 96 and 98. 10 pounds. What girl doesn't feel a little more self-conscious when they were carrying 10 extra pounds, right? I know I do. Uh, I feel 10 times as self-conscious for every 10 pounds. (laughs) It's like proportionate to the amount of pressure it puts on your joints. (laughs) It takes the same hit to your confidence. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure that has a lot to do with it, too. Especially yeah. here with this quote she's talking. It's about the chin. And I love hearing her say, it's not about the music, crazy. But I don't feel like she'd ever said anything like that before. I think and she's like, joking. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so no, sure. I mean, I think she's, okay, I don't think she's joking about the angle and the chin. I think she's being serious about that. But you're right. I don't think that she cared before, but maybe she did. Or maybe she didn't. Everything was so much looser in the day, but now she's married, she has a husband. She continued to be very self-conscious about that too. There are many, many candid and backstage, for that matter, meet and greet photos where she's like craning her head forward Mm -hmm. or turning her head a certain way Mm -hmm. because of that chin. Mm -hmm. She had to get it just right. You might Mm -hmm. as well mouth prune while you're at it. Yeah, I do. Every time there's a camera on me, like whenever anyone wants to take my picture, I have to tilt my head like, we know our angles. And that's why I know 
never let anyone take my picture. She also did additional promo with the Spark single. She also did K-Rock Breakfast with Tori, May 7th, 1998. Were you there? I was not at breakfast because as I may have shared on the show before, I ditched my final the day before oh, for yeah. the club show. Oh, yeah. I had to pick one, and so I missed the breakfast because oh. I had to go take that test. Here's K-Rock Breakfast with Tori. And um, his, we talked about it a lot, and Spark is really about finding this place in yourself when things... You know, when you suffer a loss or you go through something that really breaks your heart, you, you find a place in yourself. And she doesn't really know where she's going in the video. Um, but the main thing is she's pulling on some kind of strength inside herself. That might be a, a beautiful lead-in to Spark, if you wouldn't mind playing that one for us now. I think we can do that. Can you do Spark with the lineup here? She's looking at the band and they're all looking at Myself? her like she's crazy. Because we'd love to... Uh... We'd love to hear it. Obviously, it's one of our most requested songs at K-Rock, and a chance to have you do it live would be just the aces. Every doing Spark, boys. Everybody's kind of... sitting behind the drums going, really, Spark? Okay, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard it. <laughs> Let's give it a shot. The power you command, Vina. <laughs> then Let's I want to hear Convoy. That drug you're taking? Will you do Convoy after this? Viagra. <laughs> Tori Amos live on K-Rock. performance also appeared as a snippet on the launch cd the launch cd rom which was a promo for launch magazine and this is a little bit from the pink pop netherlands show which oh, i love pink pop i've always wanted to go to pink pop what about you they still have it i think so mm -hmm. maybe they don't maybe it's over but I just love that name, Pink Pop. I was going to say, is it because of the name? Yeah, Pink Pop. <laughs> this has a really great interview with her prior, and we played some clips of that throughout the show. But here is the performance of Spark. performing Spark on Jules Holland, May 22nd, 1998. The video has been taken down from YouTube, but I still have the audio. Uh, how many around in the old time? 
Well, that takes us into the live section proper. We're just going to say it loud and proud. Tori Amos performed Spark in her career so far to date. Prior to the 2020 tour, she has performed Spark a total of 173 times. times. And that breaks down as follows. 91 times on Plugged. So this is the all-time debut of Spark in a live show setting. This is April 18th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. What'd you think of that? Were you there? I was not there. Where were you? I was at school. Miserable. Mm. I've Where been to Fort Lauderdale. What was I on April 18th, 1998, you're mm-hmm. asking? Yeah. I was eight days in a row watching Spark on Letterman that I had taped. You were just watching it all day, every yeah, day. every day for eight <laughs> days in a row. <laughs> yes. I was probably working my menial little teenage job. And Florida in April, you couldn't pay me. You couldn't pay me Florida in February through December. Actually, so just January. Yeah, I'll actually be in Tampa in April. So watch out, Tampa. What Here did you I just come. say? You couldn't pay me. How much are you getting paid? <laughs> I'm not. Mm. This is July 5th in Werchter, Belgium, with a great little intro before the song. <laughs> July 23rd in Detroit with a cute little mess up right in the middle.
1999, she didn't perform Spark at all. That's a little strange. I always think that Tori, like with Blood Roses, for example, she performed it a ton in '96 and then not in '98 at all. Like she needs a a couple, yeah, like a tour off at least. Yeah. So she didn't perform it in 1999 at all, but then she didn't perform it at all in 2001 solo. Strange. Why do you think that is? Maybe it was too close to home, or she'd sort of spent all that time with it and associated that song specifically with a kind of traumatic event and just Mm. didn't want to go back to that place for a while because it's still held. At this point, you know, it comes back after she's had Tosh. Yeah. So maybe she could sing it from a different place without that attachment to it. Like maybe she used the song throughout the 98 tour to heal and didn't need to go back to that place. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. But she does bring it back in 2002, 2003 on Scarlet's Walk. And she brings it back here. She performs it 12 times on this tour. And here it is for the first time after what was an incredibly long drought. And believe me, we felt the drought. I was parched. February 1st, 2003, Berlin, Germany. Here's March 23rd in Tulsa, Oklahoma. doesn't perform it at all on the separate tour 2003's lot of pianos but she does bring it back in 2005 for the summer of sin were you there i sure was i sinned i sinned and i felt sensual about it i summered and i felt summer about it no regrets um this is san diego california september 14th 2005 with a little bit of an improv Thank you. 
to nicotine benches. She's addicted to nicotine benches. She's afraid of the light in the dark. Mommy, kiss me tonight. Mommy, why are those hobbits bringing me a bag of fire? <laughs> American Doll Posse, 2007. Doll Posse. 16 times. That's quite a bit. It is quite a bit, technically, but it's not that much, considering how many shows she did, right? Yeah. But it did make its way onto six legs and boots. What do you think about that? That's quite a few. Syracuse, Philadelphia, Montreal, Toronto, Detroit, and Cleveland. This song begs for a band. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. Maybe, and that's why she did perform it a couple times solo on the Summer of Sin, but not on Strange Little Tour. Mm-mm. Here's Montreal, October 21st, six times on the sinful attraction tour and you know what david hmm. it was sinful and attractive mostly sinful mostly sinful. but i'm attracted to the sin of it all mm-hmm. abnormally some would say <laughs> 2009 2010 the midwinter summer tour she performed it twice here she is performing it alone in dublin ireland on 16 july 20 times in 2011 on the Night of Hunters tour. With the quartet. With the quartet. Interesting choice, yet again, of all the things to arrange with the quartet. What do you think of the arrangement? I enjoyed it. It was definitely different. I think it was difficult for her. I seem to remember a, a f- quite a few false starts mm-hmm. when she would perform it or she'd like lose her way or something. I don't know what it is about it, but she had a hard time. I love anything with like, you know, I'd rather have spark with a quartet than like a slower ballad with a quartet. I think I always like the daring choices rather than just like the easy choices. Yeah, of course. That's why Cruel was so awesome. Yeah. Unexpected. Yeah. 
vibe. Here is a little oopsie on October 15th, 2011, which was also the tour debut. <laughs> Sounds like she like squeezed a little something out. She made a, a little, little oopsie. She made a little oopsie. She made a little oopsie. <laughs> <laughs> December 3rd, 2011 in New York City. I just think the recording of this bridge is so great and I think they do such a killer job. She did not perform it at all on the Gold Dust Orchestral Tour. She performed it nine times in 2014, Unrepentant Geraldines, and this is November 21st in Brisbane, Australia. Made it to the Native Invader tour, David. The most recent tour to date. Native Invader. Native Invader. She performed it seven times on this tour. And as someone who saw three of them, the three United States performances, I'm going to play you my favorite. Please do. Which was it? December 2nd, 2017 in Los Angeles. Wonderful. I happen to have been there myself. Were you? I was. Where were you sitting? Which show was this? It's the one where Sophia started walking down the aisle during Take the Sky as if oh, she were dancing. Yeah. She's like, I'm just here dancing. It's what we do at Tory shows. Just dance from the back to the front. I was about halfway back in the center section and I was sitting by two very lovely girls who had not seen Tori for quite some time. Dor and Danica? No. <laughs> I don't know who they were. Oh. But, you know, we had a lovely conversation. They were like, do you think she's going to play this? Do you think she's going to play this? Do you think she's going to play this? <laughs> and I think they were actually pretty into Spark now that I think about it. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is for those girls. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was the last time she played it to date. Yep. But I don't think the last time she'll ever play it. I think it's going to come back a lot on the 2020 tour. A lot, huh? Yeah, I predict it'll come back at least nine times. Tell me why. I don't know. I feel like she's found her groove with it. She played it nine times on the Unrepentant Geraldine's tour, played it seven times on the Native Invader tour. I think Mm -hmm. it's a song that she can accomplish solo and still have the drama of moving from the keyboard to the piano, back to the keyboard. She does love that and it gives her, it's built into the song. She's not messing with the arrangement. Exactly. that's how, that's how it goes. Right. So <laughs> She's like, and now for one of the classics. Yeah. <laughs> and that, perhaps the greatest classic in all of music. Liberace did that, mm-hmm. right? That was yes, Liberace. Liberace. This is the Boy Who Can remix of Up the Creek. Follow that boy on SoundCloud. I have to admit, I was terrified going into this episode, David. I could see it in your eyes. Could you really? At first I thought it was the light from the wine, but now I know it's just pure <laughs> terror. It was pure terror. Choir Girl's a big task. It's a big task to hit one of your favorite albums in the world. Do you think you felt better about it because we'd eased in with the primer? No, I felt yeah. a little bit more intimidated, actually. This is, it's like that was kind of an accidental first date, but you get it out of the way. And now that this is kind of like the official first date, you like feel better about it because we've kind of already done it. We were like with friends. They happen to be hobbits. And like we ran into <laughs> each other at a pizza place. But now we're like alone. No, really doing I, it. I feel like the primer just made me more nervous to do Spark because we were further away from like the primer was scripted and we had like a story, right? Well, I wouldn't use the term scripted loosely or it was loosely scripted. Yeah. In the sense that we knew what order we were going through things, but, but here we we're, were like just now really we got talking like we normally do. Yeah, but now here we are like actually doing the show as we as the show has evolved into. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, will people still accept us? I've gained 10 pounds. Where's the camera? Like if you see how high up I hold my chin to this microphone you'd be surprised ladies and gentlemen I've been caking glitter makeup on my face I'm like more for years more. <laughs> the less they see the better trust me <laughs> just cover me in glitter Seriously. give me a burka um, though I was visibly and erotically nervous about this episode I think that we've well we've accomplished it <laughs> well it's done it's done we did it we done did it is it good I don't know you, you be the decide. judge if you think it isn't don't rate us on iTunes right. but if you do five stars please all the stars and if you think it's good please follow us on our social at songs of Torimus on instagram facebook and twitter we are also on patreon patreon.com slash songs of Torimus. if you really like what we do go check us out there we have two other podcasts that we have one for the five dollar supporters called tour all year where we profile different people and where we do live commentary tracks for live video bootlegs who knows what will pop up on tour all year and then we have another podcast drive all night plus where we explore right now we're doing little earthquakes yeah yeah we're remastering reconditioning revisiting little earthquakes finally giving those songs their due their proper due and then once little earthquakes is done proper we're going to move on to the little earthquakes b-sides so we're gonna give those their due as well. Mm. We'll never be done with this Tori Amos project. Well, I would never want to be. I woke up in a panic and I was like, I was telling my friend Maggie, it's like I could move faster. Like we could really like release a brand new episode every week if we really pushed ourselves. But the thing is, is like to envision that, A, I would have to quit my job, but then like to envision that, it's not even like, okay, I'm just gonna chug through this for like two months and then we'll get it done. No, it's like in order to make that happen, it's like, okay, for the next seven years, I just gotta move at a lightning pace. <laughs> 
<laughs> because we're four years into this project and we've gotten to the, we're starting the fourth album as we're starting the fourth year. I know. So I'm hoping to get through Venus this year. That's what I'm hoping to okay, do. Okay, so not even or al- at least two Venus. This year. Not even an album per year. Yeah, well, because there's think, B-sides as well. But so. tour is gonna throw us for a loop. Tour will throw us for a loop. Yeah. We also have another show called Never Shut Up. It's a daily divination, and and that's gonna eventually become like a touring. I think that'll be like our tour pre-show. God knows. God knows what's gonna happen. Follow us everywhere. Just I think follow that's us. the right place for it. Yeah. For Never Shut Up to be the vessel for the tour it, pre and even post. No, well, we have tour all night, which is the touring show. Well, yeah. All right. Follow us on our social. Email us if you have a question, concern, problem, desire, compliment. Songsofturiamus at gmail.com. You can also call our hotline because we can't interview everyone. So if you have something to say about these songs, call our hotline 323-296-9955. 1-800-SPARK. How do you feel about Spark now coming out of this episode, David? I feel good about it. I think I was talking to myself into something with that, you know, comparing it to a first date when you've already had the first date. I wasn't letting myself feel intimidated because we'd cracked the lid on Choir Girl. So it was like, let's give it to me. Plug me. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with Cruel. Calling all lovers, brothers, and bougainvilleas. <laughs> if anyone knows of bougainvillea that can be interviewed on the show, please send us their contact information. Mm-hmm. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com.